All right, it's the uh, Chance of Gaming Podcast, episode 32. I'm Adam Chance, and with me always is Richard and Roy. Good evening, everyone. This is Rich coming from St. Louis, Missouri, home of the, hopefully by the time you hear this, Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues. And now I'm changing myself. But we'll see. We'll see. And I'm Roy from uh, West Michigan, in Holland, Michigan. Um, and I guess I don't have that much going on. You, you don't you don't have a dog in the hockey fight. No, okay. I do not. I was just up there uh, recently in uh, Wisconsin, you know, and I was. I was you I w- took a picture of my house. Yes, by by Lake uh-huh. Michigan. I was like, I could see Roy's house from here. Look at that! Wow, <laughs> that was the furthest north I had ever been. It was very very interesting. And uh, the hobby shop I ran into in Kenosha, Wisconsin, I did a blog post on it, which you can see at chanceofgaming.com. And uh, yeah, that was very interesting experience going in that place. I highly recommend you to go by that place. So I hope he gets a lot of people that come in there and go, hey, I'm here because some dude on the internet told me that this place was good. You know, Adam, it just occurred to me that you should have gone to Lake Geneva, which is not that far from Kenosha. Right, which is, uh, that's the site of the original Gen Con, right? Yeah, and there, there is, they have a, there's a little plaque in some park there that has uh, Gygax's name on it. And so people will come and take a little photo of that plaque with their dice on it to get their dice blessed by, by uh, you know, St. Gary, I guess. Huh, that's cool. Didn't they, didn't somebody, they want to make like a dragon statue or, or something? Wasn't that going around? Some kind of monument? I, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, if I can find that, I'll stick it in the uh, the show notes for that. And uh, and also maybe you heard me recently on uh, the Havoc Cat, the Lonely Havoc podcast. Um, I was I was interviewed on that, and uh, so yeah, his whole thing is like he interviews uh, just hobby people and asks them twenty questions, and so that that was it. So you'll hear me yeah. talk a lot about Looping Louie, and um, we talk about. Um, Mexican folklore and the tortilla monster. So that's all on there. <laughs> oh, that's a teaser. Yeah, yeah, it is. You should check that out. The tor- the tortilla monster is is uh, frighteningly frighteningly difficult to keep out of your house because he slips under the cracks under doors and. <gasps> oh my gosh! I didn't think about that. Yeah, he just slide yep. right in. Did not think about that. Man, the lore on this thing is getting big. I can't wait to cash in because this is going to be like my Slender Man. Oh yeah, where I get all, all that money. Although he came up with it though, so you'll just see um, law, IP lawsuits being filed between Chance of Gaming and uh, the ha- uh, Lonely Havoc podcast over ownership <laughs> of the Tortilla Monster. Okay. Oh, it's ugly. Because <laughs> you know uh, Steven Spielberg will come in and want to option the movie rights. You know, like it happens when he when he's listening to the show and you know goes in there. Yeah. So I'm yeah. hoping for Michael Bay. I want to see explosions. Oh yeah, that would be cool. Hmm. But yeah, I should definitely do a uh, a wiki. Do, uh, yeah, I'm gonna do a cryptid wiki on the tortilla monster if I can remember and have some time, and I'm not lazy, so it doesn't sound likely, but it, it might happen. And uh, see, so, yeah, the other thing was at the end of it, I was I was like, hey, let's have an art contest. If you have talent, or better yet, if you don't have talent, why don't you draw a picture of the tortilla monster and just at me on Twitter with it? And, uh, with the Lonely Havoc, and he will give you a t-shirt if he likes it, not me. I do have buttons at Dice Tower Con that are coming. 
I tend to pick my Twitter avatars based off of stupid things that I've talked about on this show, so that may be my next one. And boy, there, boy, there is a lot of stupid things we talk about <laughs> on the show. A lot. Uh, oh, that reminds me, we got to get that limited edition Dice Tower Con shirt. I'll get that nailed down this week. I'll post a poll or something. So it should say, option A is the only podcast, the, I'm sorry, the only tabletop podcast to come out against blank, or option B, the first tabletop podcast to come out against blank. I think, I think, of, I think we go with only. I haven't heard anyone else come out against the burning of children. I know, but who knows? There, there could be somebody. All of the other podcasts, they're they're too scared to take take on the children burners. They're they're like, whoa, man, that's that's some heavy. I just yeah. can't, I can't they're sit there. And, yeah. Advance after combat, they won't touch this. <laughs> what what does history on the table think about burning children alive? <laughs> I'm not He's busy, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna call him out. I'm not going to put any words in his mouth, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say, what does he think? Ask him. Well, how do you feel about burning children alive, you know? And so. yeah. and then when he comes out against it, we'll say you're just following us. Uh huh. Well, you're not the first. <laughs> We've been against it for a while. And I actually, I actually talked about that in in the interview. I was like, yeah, just these dumb ideas we have, you know. And it was like, how did you get on the subject of burning children alive? And I'm like, well, we were talking about that that, that thing with the. Uh, game of thrones and yeah so anyway we're social justice warriors for causes that nobody cares about <laughs> I, yeah i guess that would be a non non-issues how often <laughs> is this ha yeah, happening anyway so um a couple of a uh, couple of things we have this um nice deal going with uh, alterdementia.com we'll link that in the show notes where you can get 20 percent off your 3d printing with discount code COG2019. And the contest we've had to uh, give away a 3D printed dragon, which looks pretty fancy. And I believe, uh, what brand is he, Roy? It's Fat Dragon? Yeah, it's from Fat Dragon Games. And uh, it's a great, great dragon is kind of the, um, the, the file name. Or, you know, that's how it's listed at, at Fat Dragon Games. Okay. So, so how do we want to figure out who won this or who won well, this? How do well, we know? We have a grand total of two entries. So everybody missed out that was listening to this and could have, you know, I know gotten you, in on that. Was it people that were like, well, I would answer, but I never win anything. You know, that's just this just was your chance. Goes. Yeah, that's, I do. And then, so, then, then I'm right because I never win anything. <laughs> So um, as far as how we, we choose between the two of these, I don't know. Um, we could flip a coin. We could do something on the Internet. Um, uh, I, think well, we, I think we could flip a coin. I like that. Okay. I like the idea of flipping a coin. I don't have one handy. Do you guys have one? I do not. Okay. Richard, do you have a coin? do not. We probably should have prepared this in our... No, uh, no lie. Let me double check. I don't, I don't have one. Uh, no, <laughs> no. I don't. All right, we'll just call this podcast over at this point. Just that's it. Okay, we're done. We'll come back. Um, <laughs> uh, eh, double check. Do I have anything like anything with well, a heads or tails? I have so much there. crap up here, but thought I did. 
Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have, like, hobo nickels. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I have a hobo nickel. This thing's huge, though. Like... <laughs> okay, yeah, if I... If I yeah, you can hear it. If I if I mess up with it, okay. Okay, well that one has two heads. Hold on. Uh okay, yeah, this one's better. It has this one has a head and a tail. Also still heavy. Alright, so I'm gonna flip it. And uh who wants to call it? Well so Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the person one will be heads, person two will be tails. Okay. We'll go with that. Okay. So right. who wants who wants to call it? Well, you're just gonna flip it, right? And yeah, tell I'm us gonna, what it I'll, is. I'll flip it. Uh, yeah, you're right. That, okay, yeah, call it. Okay, so so one is heads and two is tails. Yes, okay, here we go. Okay, all right. And the winner is tails. Damn. Okay. Matt Peterson, History on the Table podcast. There he is. All right, so there you go. Congratulations, was he, was he the guy we were just talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's the History on the Table podcast guy. Yep. Okay, so yeah, in the packaging for his um, dragon, ask just put a little note in there. How do you feel about burning children alive? <laughs> Circle yes, uh, yeah, against well, for or against. A breathing dragon, so it might be a problem. Yeah, it's true. All right, so on to what we've been playing lately, Richard. Tell me all about Ardeen's forty-four. Ardeen's forty-four. We are running the full campaign with four of us. And I'm playing, well, I'm playing the Americans for the most part. Um, and we're currently just getting our asses kicked all, all the way across the, the forest. Uh, but reinforcements are on the way, so I'm feeling good about the fact that I've got tanks coming on the board finally. Uh, have not been completely kicked out of that zone yet. And I think we're on turn five, which is day three. So I'm not feeling real good about my progress so far, but at the same time, uh, there's not been a whole lot of choices for me so far. Uh, Argon 44 is a, it's a GMT game. Um, it's pretty, pretty good size. It's, it's heavier than average, I would say. Um, it's a, it's a Mark Simonich game. It's part of the, I don't know, it's not really a series, but in my mind, it's a series. It's the, what do you want to call it? The Zock series or the Zock Bond series or the, the 44 series of the known and not all 44 games. There's Arden 44, Holland 44, Norman uh, Normandy 44, and then there's also Ukraine 43, and I think there's a France 40 also, and there's a Stalingrad game coming out. Um, but they're all similar mechanics. The rulebook has kind of progressed over the different versions of it, which creates some interesting little oddities that we've had to actually go on BGD and ask him about. Um, but it is a fun game. The only thing is, if you're playing the allies in that game, for the first five or six turns, there is not much for you to do. I mean, the Germans are on in full force and you're waiting for reinforcements to come. So there's a lot of sitting around twiddling my thumbs waiting for my reinforcements to come on. That said, you know, it, it is a historical thing that happened and it was a surprise attack the Americans were not ready for. So I'll wait my turn and when my tanks come on, I'll get my chance to push them back to the uh, to the German border. Okay, so this is kind of like not not a series. It's like, first I was going to make a joke about the designer being Tony Curtis, but then I saw where Mark Simonich also did uh, France 40? Yeah. Yeah, that was one of them. I don't know what order they came in, um, but yeah, there's France 40, and then I think there's I think there's five of them with a sixth coming out. Yeah, France 40 definitely looks like something I'd be interested in. I like that time period, and this is like, oh, this is tactical scale, right? Uh, kind uh, of, o operational? Yeah, I'd, I'd call it probably operational. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but there's not a whole lot of supply rules, which is, you know, operational games usually get more into supply. This one, as long as you can trace lines and supply, you don't really have to worry too much about where they're getting it. So you said that this used to be playing the full campaign. Yeah. So is this a series of games that kind of play into each other, or is this one long game? It's just a long game. We're playing, so we've played, I think, three sessions. We've gone, uh, each session usually goes, hmm, I'd say probably three hours, two to three hours. So we've played about eight or nine hours so far, and we've probably got at least another three or four sessions to go. So So is this on Vassal? No, we're playing live at someone's house, uh, one of, uh, local. Oh, games. so you just you leave it set up then between yeah, sessions. Yeah, on his table in between sessions. Oh, okay, all right. With I someone was... who doesn't own a cat. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think he does own a cat. He owns a dog, but the dog hasn't bothered it. So, so yeah, that's Arden Forty Four. It's a it's a good game. Um, it's another one in the same series that I have played a number of times is Holland Forty Four, which is Operation Market Garden. Um. I think I like Holland a little better than Arden 44, but they're both good. So I might try if I can get, uh, I've got a friend that owns Normandy 44. So, you know, this year, a couple of days ago is the uh, 75th anniversary of D-Day. We might play that one in honor of that if we can get that on the table. So, so that's Arden 44. I also played, so that's a big game. I played a tiny little game called NATO Air Commander. This is a Holland Spiel game. Uh, it just came out last winter, so it's relatively new. I played it a couple times and then I played it actually once again today and then immediately set it up again. And it's sitting on my table, mostly finished right now, but uh, it's just, it's such a fun little game. I know we talked about this last year. Did you guys play this at all? Have you played it? It's Mm, been on my list to possibly order. I think twice between me and my friend, Chris, we were, we both have sat like on the, uh, the fence and getting it. So, yeah, it's really good. It's solitaire only. Um, so, you know, if you're not interested in solitaire, there's no reason to get it. But um, I picked it up in the Hollandsville sale last year. It takes place in, I don't know if there's an exact year, but basically 1985. Height of the Cold War when all of those, you know, Russia rushing across the fold of gap games are set. Um, and you just play, obviously, the Air Commander. Um, so uh, if you've played a State of Siege game, you know that there's different tracks that the enemies come in on. And this one looks kind of like a State of Siege game, but it plays way better than the State of Siege games that I play. Um, there's a lot more interesting decision-making. You get to pick uh, between your available planes, what packages you want to send out, uh, which which of the, uh, they call them, uh, thrust lines that uh, you want to try to attack. You're given, every turn you're given a couple of objectives that often are just impossible for you to do, uh, but you'll try to do those objectives or just completely ignore them. You'll gain and lose resource points to repair your aircraft and buy better bombs and stuff like that. It plays pretty quick. Once you know what you're doing, it plays in about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Uh, but it's a pretty quick game, small footprint. And this morning I sat out on my front porch because it was a nice morning and just played that outside. So NATO Air Commander by Hollenspiel. And then... Yeah, a couple weeks ago at our monthly gaming day, we played Time of Crisis, uh, which is another GMT game. This one I actually won in a giveaway, um, but it's one I've been looking at for a while. You play, it's the third century in Rome, and the game for, I guess, two to four players. It played really well with four. Uh, and you just play a bunch of families that are vying for power, trying to, you know, build legacy points by taking over governorships of certain provinces and 
ultimately taking over the emperor position itself. Um, it's a longer game. It probably went close to four hours, but it never, it never felt like a drug or anything. It just, it would have gone faster if we all knew what we were doing, but it does, you do learn it pretty quickly. I, if we played it again, it would probably be three to three and a half hours. Um, so it was, it's very procedural. You know, you just go down the list and do the things in order. So there's not a whole lot of uh, exceptions to rules and everything like that that make things complicated, but there's lots of good decisions to be made. There's barbarians coming on the board that you have to fight off. And the guy that won the game, my friend Chad, he actually spent his whole game fighting off barbarians, but he got all these victory points for defending Rome for barbarians. And then on the very last turn came in and swept up and became the emperor and won the game by just a few points. So, it was a lot of fun. We definitely want to play that one again. That was Time of Crisis by GMT. And then another game I got back out that I've played a bunch of times before is uh, Star Wars Imperial Assault. I was looking for something to play with my youngest daughter, my nine-year-old. Um, she's played this with me a little bit before. I've actually started up the campaign for Imperial Assault probably four or five times with different people, and we always enjoy it, so we can just never maintain any sort of consistency. So... Uh, there is an app for this so that the, the base game is set up so that one player plays the, emperor, the Empire and all the other players play the Rebels. Um, so it's a one versus many game. But they have an app for it now so that the app will play the Empire and you can just play it as a co-op game. So my nine-year-old and I started that up and we're, we're going to play that one together. Yeah. I, I have actually ordered that. It recently completely bottomed out in price. It, yeah. Uh, and I scooped it up. I think it was like $30, $35 on Amazon. It was, so it was about half price MSRP. And I got it. I, I wish I had gotten it a long time ago, but I guess I'm happy for the savings. Uh, I had no idea it was a, a dungeon crawler. And so yeah. that's really makes me interested in it. Yeah, have you played Descent? Uh, I played the first one a while back, and oh. it's supposed to play a lot like that. And I actually bought yeah, a copy it's, it's of the second. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I've never played Descent, but from what I understand, it, it is just a reskin of Descent. So. Okay. Well, that's like that's super cool, and uh, I do look forward to uh, that coming in, and uh, giving it a shot. But it's it's like a way like on like back order, so you know. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, and the app is free, so you can just download the app. You can get it either on, you know, like your iPad or probably iPhone as well, or you can get it on Steam. Um, but it's free, and it will tell you exactly what the bad guys do, and you react, and it's easy to follow along with. And it's a fun game. If you play it strictly solitaire, you're probably going to want to play at least two. Play you'll you'll run two characters. You don't want to just play it as one. Um, but it, it's made for between two and four characters. I find that it one, runs well at two and at four. Not quite as well as at three, so but it's a good game. I like it. And cool. and then the last game I played was Downtown, um, which is an older game that a friend of mine had. Um, and I've heard of this game. I heard rumors of a reprint, but I'm not hearing anything concrete about that. I would after finally getting to play this game. Oh, I just I really 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 want to play it more. It's uh, it's the Air War over Hanoi uh, during Vietnam, and it takes place. There's a campaign mode, or you can just jump into it at any point. But obviously, earlier in the war, you're not going to have as good of planes. And on the other side, the Vietnamese are not going to have as much. Uh, they won't have SAMs yet, and they won't have the, the better planes. They won't have as much anti-aircraft guns and stuff like that. So 
Uh, later, obviously, becomes much crazier and harder to break in, and you have jamming missions and wild weasels. And but you literally have to design the entire mission. You know, you set up you have a separate map where you tell your guys this is where you're going to fly in. They have to meet their waypoint. Certain uh, types of planes, like your combat air patrol, they can pretty much just go wherever they want because they're just looking for people to shoot down. Uh, but the rest of it has to be carefully planned out. You have to go in here, come out here, drop your bombs here. And it was, it is definitely the best game that I've played all year. So I want to play it again. Um, hopefully, I know, I know I'll get to play again because Johan likes playing it. Um, hopefully, there'll, there'll be a reprint of it. But if there's not, there is a, uh, a 1985 version of that. When I say 1985, I mean, it, that's when it takes place called, uh, I think it's called Red Storm. Uh, where it's, it's the same system, but this one takes place again, Old Gap, Germany, 1985, where all the all the Cold War gone hot games are. So, oh yeah, that that one's coming, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's, it's on the it, P500 list. I think it's already met its number, but it's not even printing yet. So I think I'm going to try to pick that one up while it's still at the P500 price. Okay. Yeah. Um. You. Yeah. That sounded really cool. I guess I could uh, ask my close personal friend uh, Roger McGowan. You know, what's what's going on <laughs> with that thing? He probably did the artwork for it. So. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll know. I guess. And uh, yeah. It, I. It. I, I. Like I said, uh, there's a great. Um, like I said to you on Twitter, there is a great uh, documentary on Amazon Prime called. Uh, I think it's called just Thud Pilots or something like yeah. that. I watched that because of your recommendation. It was good. I like, excuse me, I was talking to someone about that. Actually, I was talking to Johan about it um, because he's also in my Arden 44 game. Um, We were talking about that. We were also talking about Ken Burns Vietnam and how great it is that they can make these documentaries and actually talk to and interview the people that were there. Um, And that's something that, you know, you go back to, there's still some World War II people, probably not, I don't know if there's any World War I guys left, but the Civil War stuff, you got letters and stuff like that, but it's just really amazing to be able to talk to the people that actually lived through it. So, yeah, Thud Pilots is good. Thank you for the recommendation. Now, um, in that vein, um, I read something around with the uh, the D-Day. Uh, it reminded me of something with the D-Day Remembrance. And yeah. uh, I read an article, and it talked about something like less than 4% of World War II veterans are still alive. And they're, like, all, like, in their 90s or thereabouts, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I'm not sure, like, who is the um, the youngest and who's the oldest, but they're really um, kind of disappearing. And that's, you know, really sad. Uh, I hope, like, enough oral history has been done with them. You know, I'm a big, big fan of that. Uh, my alma mater, the University of Southern Mississippi, has an oral history department, and that's basically all they do is not only local, but they fly, like, all over the country and all over the world to interview, you know, various people wherever they can about stuff like that. And I really wanted to do, like, a thing, because uh, in my day job, we almost got a grant to do uh, just interviews with um, Operation Iraqi Freedom or whatever it's called, uh, veterans that were coming back from that that were in state uh, for to go around and just collect stories. And I think that would be really neat to do. And it reminded yeah. me, uh, I mean, the Vietnam guys are getting really, really old now. Right. They're in their, like, 70s. Yeah, and, and that, 
talked a few months ago of the movie They Shall Not Grow Old. They they did that, but obviously all those recordings were made in the probably the fifties and sixties or whatever. So they were able to get those recordings, even though those guys are now all gone for the most part. So, you know, uh, I know nowadays I'm starting to see, like, you know, used to be you saw an old guy wearing, and he'd wear a Vietnam, you know, veteran hat. Now I, what I'm seeing more is like an old guy wearing a Operation Desert Storm yeah. hat. And I'm like, wow, yeah, that's true. That was like what, like 1993? Yeah, that, that would have been me it, had I gone to war. I mean, I was... 1920 wow yeah so it's it's what yeah you're right it would have been that so you're these guys are starting to get like you know super old yeah yeah it's um you're talking about the people that just learned to gather stories i got interviewed for one of those a few years ago um you guys i'm sure probably heard of the ferguson riots that we had here in st louis a few years ago and that all happened about uh, about four miles from my house so at the time yeah i Someone just interviewed me about one of those, and it was it was just one of those things where they just asked you questions about what was going on and what were you thinking. And I didn't have anything particularly interesting to say, I don't think, but I think it was just one of those things where they just wanted to get people's voices into recording so that 100 years from now, people would be able to have some context for what was going on. That's Yeah, that's really good to, to have, you know, because after a while, there'll be no way to actually do it if you don't, you know, if you don't do it now. And that's what kind of sucks about, you know, history is always written by the victors, you know, so with yeah. a lot of that, you don't, you, you know, you're getting kind of a biased thing. And with so many, like, um, primary sources for various wars, you have to take that with, like, a, a grain of salt, you know, how the Russians felt about, you know, Napoleon versus how the, you know, the Brits felt and how it actually was. And, yeah, so, anyway. Yeah. I find that my gaming and my reading and my uh you know electric video watching and all that all tends to go hand in hand where I'll, I'll find a game that'll make me want to read a book and it'll make me want to watch a video and it'll make me want to play a game and it all kind of goes in a circle together <laughs> historical yeah. gaming is really my my highest interest i like i like the strategy i like getting together with another person and playing games but it's, it's the history that drives me yeah absolutely all right, Roy. So tell us about the uh, well, follow going that up from that. <laughs> yeah, to unexploded cow. Uh, um, so you can do it. I believe in I you. can do it. Yep. So unexploded. How can I follow all this stuff about you know history and and the gravity of of all these games? Russian uniform on the cover. <laughs> red hat, a gold star. So with the game of Unexploded Cow, so <laughs> um, this and the the second game I want to talk about are both from Cheap Ass Games. Are you guys familiar with Cheap Ass? I heard about them recently. I've heard of them okay. before, and honestly, you know, we're gonna talk about it later. Yeah. So um, Unexploded. Well, okay. So Cheap Ass Games had the philosophy back in the day of making only the parts of of a game that that people really needed like special cards or whatever, on the theory that if you need dice, well, everybody has dice that they can take out of the Monopoly game. Uh, you know, everybody has poker chips or something like that. So that was kind of the philosophy behind Cheap Pass games. And so one of the ones that did really well was this game called Unexploded Cow. And um, this is a little card game where you have uh, mad cattle 
and Great Britain and unexploded mines in France. So a, a uh, an enterpri- enterprising entrepreneur uh, ships the cows to France to clear out the minefields. And so the, the idea is to get your cow to step on a mine, and then you can collect the bounty that that particular cow has on it. So you want to blow up the cow? Yes, you do. Okay. <laughs> so every time at the end of your turn, you roll a die, and if it lands on one of your cows, it's your cow that stepped on a mine. If I have uh, two cows and I roll a three, the person on my left is the one that has the cow that explodes. Um, so you're collecting cash, you're collecting uh, point cards in uh, in terms of various cities in France that have been cleared of mines. Um, so it's a it's a goofy little game. It's amusing. So unexploded cow. They're fun. Yeah. Yeah, and so there are other cows that um, if you put them in somebody else's field, they will cost them money. Uh, or if you have, you can have a spy cow that you can put in somebody else's field, but still belongs to you. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, um, there's plenty of wheeling and dealing and, and, uh, the, the cattle tend to move around. They go from field to field every now and then there's a card that says stampede or whatever. And you shuffle the, the, all the, the cows and deal them back out and things like that. So. And then I played Captain Park's Imaginary Polar Expedition. That's another cheap-ass game. That's and a mouthful. It is. So uh, there's the, the Gentleman's Club in London uh, where all the, the um, people come and, and brag about their expeditions that they've done. So the goal of this game is basically to stay out of sight in London. So the game, the game board is a map of London. And um, Captain Park roams London, and if you're ever in the same area, he sees you and realizes that you haven't been on an expedition. You've actually been staying in London. So you're going to go to antique stores and, and collect little knickknacks and stuff, and you have to stay out of sight for up to three or four months. And then you can triumphantly burst through the doors of the Gentleman's Club and with all of your treasures that you've uh, collected. And say, well, I've been away to the Himalayas or to Africa, and uh, look how cool I am and all the notoriety that I get. So it's uh, it's kind of in the same vein as Kill Dr. Lucky in that you're trying to avoid – or you, yeah, you're trying to avoid Captain Park as he moves yeah. around the board in a pre-programmed manner. Thematically, it reminds me of – I think it's Red Dragon Inn where you're just trying to tell the stories about the made-up adventures. Uh, is that Once Upon a Time? Maybe? I thought, I, thought, I thought that's what Red Dragon Inn was. I know there's a game where you're at a tavern and you're like a, you know, fantasy. Yeah, that, that is Red Dragon Inn. That's more of a, that's really more of a drinking game. Where if you're, <laughs> like, you can, yeah, you can get totally shit-faced playing yeah. that game. Um, where you, you take a drink and maybe you get in a, in a bar brawl so you lose some health, and if your level of intoxication ever crosses your level of consciousness, then you're out of the game. Oh, okay. I was wrong about what that one was then. Okay. Um, so then I played uh, Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu, which I've played before. So this is set in the settings in New England. There's Arkham. There's, um, oh, what are some other venues, uh, Lovecraft venues? But anyway... <laughs> University. 
Yeah. Tonic, yeah. Yep. So um, the it's it's essentially it's very much a pandemic sort of um, mechanic, wherein um, cultists come onto the board, and anytime you get more than three cultists, then they successfully, um, you know, do the ritual and they they produce a shoggoth that appears in the town. So that kind of represents your outbreaks, like in pandemic. And so then the Shoggoth will go towards the gate in that town. And if it ever gets through the gate, well, then an elder guide comes out. And he has bad things that happen as, as he gets flipped over. So you're trying to, to keep back the madness at the same time. Um, you know, so like if the Shoggoth attacks you, then you have to roll the insanity die. And you may lose some insanity. And, um, yeah. So anyway, it's... Uh, I dig it. It's it's the thematic is pretty cool, and um, it's it's pandemic with Cthulhu mixed in. Well, how did you get these cheap ass games? By the way, are they still in print? Oh. or did you pick them up used? So these uh, were friends. Uh, uh, my friend Dana had these um, two games with him. He's just had them since they were came out. The unexploded cow that I linked is a newer version. Okay. Okay. I'm just curious, yeah, because I remember them like way back in the day. Mm-hmm. I, I remember them. Uh, and then I played Imperial Settlers, which I've played before. So this is not Imperial and it's not Settlers. Um, it's a card drafting game where you um, like you play one of four factions. There's the Egyptians, there's the Barbarians, there's the Japanese, and the Romans. And each one kind of has their specialty thing that they can do. And so you're drafting cards from your personal deck and cards from a common deck that you then lay down as features in your kingdom. And so it plays over five rounds and each round you collect all of your production stuff. And then you see what you can build out of your hand. And so the cards have different effects that they do too, when you play them. So that's uh, Imperial settlers. And then I played roll for the galaxy, which I uh, played many times before. It's a faster, um, dice-dependent game uh, version of Race for the Galaxy. And so I like that game quite a bit, too. Do you own this one, Roy? I do, yep. You should bring this one to Dice Tower Con. This is one I've been wanting to play. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll see I've heard good about it, and I've never played it. Okay. He's uh, already packing, so he'll just toss it right yeah. over there in the... Uh... Well, you know, it might be in that uh-huh. library, in the, yeah, in the DTC library. Which I think that list is out there. I'll have to see if it's in there. Um, but then a game that I do not recommend is called <laughs> Man Bites Dog. <laughs> so it's All right. it's a it's a dopey little game of uh, uh, making uh, sensational headlines. Oh, okay. And it's a game that we've had laying around, and we were kind of looking for a little filler, and we said, well, let's give this a, a try. And it's I don't know. It's a filler. So you say that I, I can see my older two daughters loving this game because they really like just goofy games. And my, my middle child, the one that's coming to Dice Coward Con with me, yep. she, she loves the weird, goofy, random stuff like that, especially when it's late at night. So ah, I, okay. I could see her loving that. Well, I'll have to see about bringing this. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it if you hate it. <laughs> What's that? I'll bring it if you hate it. Yeah, I'll give it to you. What so about you, that's, that's what I've been playing. 
You been playing anything, Adam? Ah, uh, no, not really. I've just been uh, trying really hard to get streaming up and running. Uh, in this, yeah, I had kids, move, you know, moving out, moving things around in the house, and I'm just trying to build something and get it to work. And like I said uh, on Twitter recently, it's like every single time, like it, my my life has become. I come home from work, I open Amazon packages, which give me what I need. I plug up things to maybe get it to work, and it doesn't, and then I order another part off Amazon, repeat. That is my life. That's how you ordered a 50-foot network cable. I haven't seen one of those in probably 10 years. Well, yeah, see, that's that's <laughs> where I'm at now. Is like I think like maybe the wireless card I have in it just isn't enough oomph for it. So I am, I ordered 50 feet of cat five slash six for 10 bucks and it you know well-rated stuff with the ends attached that i'm going to run through my attic for my router and hopefully not die you know doing it <laughs> and uh yeah so that's that's where i'm at set your yeah. alarm extra early one morning and get up at about like 2 a.m that'll be <sighs> yeah that's true well here in mississippi even at 2 a.m it's it's like you know, it's still oh. 100, 100 degrees. It's never the heat. It's just it, whatever it is. It's Satan breathing or something. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, I did have a couple of things I wanted to touch on before we hit um, what's on your radar. The first thing is uh, I was very, very saddened, just utterly gutted to hear thewarstore.com is closing. And I was just curious, do you guys, you know, have you ordered anything for them or are familiar with them at all? I have not. I'm, yeah, you know, mostly a board game guy, not too much a miniatures guy, although I think that probably in a few years when I've got more dedicated space, I'd like to get more into miniatures, but haven't haven't done it much so far. I have ordered from them, but it's been a while. And so I, I, I get, you know, I get their emails um, and I just... Sometimes I just let them go by, but then I just happen to see a headline, something about closing an order for fulfillment, and uh, I read more into it. Yeah, I, I will say they have, like currently right now, they're having a pretty big uh, sale. Basically, they're just, they're clearancing, you know, everything out, basically, and uh, yeah, so that's that's going on right now, and um, man, I've been ordering from them since I swear about 1999, 2000. You know, it's uh, yeah. I think I dug up like the oldest thing I could find still on their uh, server and took a screenshot of it, and it was from 2007. You know, 12 years ago, and <laughs> what it was, I had ordered a bunch of AT43 stuff. <laughs> oh <laughs> man. Yeah, if you're familiar with that, that's that's I ordered a bunch of that stuff in 2007, and so yeah, I I'm really really sad because I mean I I remember like uh, there's just so much stuff I I did and I went through like with him like uh back when there was no um limit on the Games Workshop discount he was doing like 33 percent. And I remember when there was no web cart, you basically, all this stuff was listed and you just called him up and said, <laughs> hey, I want to I want to order this. So I ta I've talked to him a hundred times. And like uh, when I was at Gen Con last, I was actually, th they were there. They had a big thing. And I was like, oh, hey, is Neil here? And um, 
they're like, nah, he doesn't come to these these kind of things. Because I, you know, I wanted to actually talk to him. Like, man, I've been buying from you for years, and uh, I bought some uh, blood and plunder stuff there uh, at at Gen Con. So yeah, I mean, I hate to see it, and I think I placed two orders so far because the clearancing stuff keeps getting better as as the week goes by, and I have a bunch of stuff sitting in my cart, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, when I kind of hope uh, it will get lower, uh, just a little bit lower, and that will tempt me enough to actually buy it. But yeah, I mean, honestly, what killed him, I would argue, is like the rise of Miniature Market and Cool Stuff Inc. You know, it's they have a, a better interface. They started, they handled stuff like Magic Singles, and uh, they just had a bigger stock. You know, there's tons of board games and other stuff that they carried that Neil didn't, so... I'm hoping when the uh, dust settles, I can interview him. You know, I'd love to sit down with him and talk to him for a good hour or two, uh, just about like just the whole history of the war store, and and then end with how it happened, what what happened, because everybody wants to know. Yeah, but, good luck uh, with that. Yeah, I know. I, I tell you, like I tried to get the NWS guy to talk to us, or even like go out and drink a beer with us, since he's in Orlando, and you know we're we're coming to Orlando, but nope. He's like, no, thank you. I'm a private person. I'm like, okay. Hmm. So there you go. <clears throat> he may be real. He may just be like um, an AI or something that's just operating ah. out of a warehouse. He's not even real. Who knows? And he's I, trying to hide from us human beings. He's gone rogue. And he's, a, he's a rogue AI from some like uh, research thing in Orlando. And yeah. Maybe he's one of those reptiloids. Could be. Could be. Jackson. Those people that Alex Jones warned us about. Yep. He was right all along. (laughs) So, uh, and I'm also working on a couple blog posts. Uh, I ran into a fantastic discussion on the uh, Privateer Press, like the unofficial uh, Facebook group. I mean, it got over 400 um, uh, responses to it and it's basically about a guy was like look i'm just you know i'm kind of calling you out privateer press on the condition of war machine and hordes you know where where you're at and i really think you are losing um your player base is shrinking and this is why i think that is and this is what you can do and so it's like 400 600 people commenting on it yeah i've been doing screenshots and I almost forgot we were recording tonight. I was actually editing screenshots so I could black out people's names and their little faces from Facebook and realize, oh, yeah, I got a show to do. So I really want to uh, do that blog post because it raised a lot of interesting points. And the history of War Machine is really interesting. It basically exploded because Games Workshop was a garbage company back then. And people were really, really interested in competitive play, and Games Workshop was not. So Privateer Press came out and said, look, that's what we do. All we do is competitive play, and that's what that's what we're going to want to do. So if you want to do competitive play, come over here and play our game. And um, they rode that for a while, and a lot of people argue in that, uh, in that uh, post that the reason why they're dying now is because people have stopped being interested in competitive play. 
and they want casual play, and that's why Games Workshop is successful now, and Privature Press is not. But anyway, I'll type it out and post it later in the week. It'll be fun. So and the yes, go ahead. Uh, Privature yeah. Press is on the skids. Well, the people that post there argue yes, and it's basically oh. anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. of, hey, you know, there used to be 60 people that play in my town, and now nobody even stocks them. There's a lot of people like that, and I know personally, uh, you know, nobody stocks it. I haven't seen it stocked on the shelf when it wasn't in a half-price bin, and I couldn't tell you when. Mm. So, I don't know. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but I mean, they're constantly putting out, like, uh, stuffed toys of their stuff. Uh, They have several other IPs, like Level 7, uh, which I ordered a copy of that from the uh, Dice Tower uh, flea market, because I found out it was a a sci-fi dungeon crawler. And uh, they also do Monster Apocalypse, which they've restart, oh, yeah. uh, restarted, and I jumped on, you know, with the nice apes and everything. So maybe they're doing okay, but people at least argue the point that War Machine is not doing well. War Machine and Hordes, so. You know, I was interested in War Machine a little bit, and I bought very little bit into it. Um, and it seems like that, that, that uh, property is rich enough in story that they could, like, squeeze some kind of a comic book or and maybe they have i don't know or uh they they have uh over the um over the course of the years you know there there's been magazines comics novels all that kind of stuff and some of that stuff is still made and i'm with you man i love their lore i absolutely love reading the books and reading the background in them and, and just like buying the game books and stuff it was great mm-hmm. i really really dug it and um yeah i don't know uh, another reason that people argue why it's not popular is because it's it's too competitive. Like, if Roy just wanted to get into it, if he went into his local store where there were players, they're not friendly. At best, they would criticize him for what he bought, saying, why'd you buy that? Because it's, it's no good in the current meta. You know, and we're not interested in playing a casual game. I'm trying to tool up my list for the next tournament. And that's like all they do. It's all they do is get ready for tournaments. And so, eh, I don't know. Hmm. But it'll it'll come out later, and we'll see what you guys think. And the other blog post I'm kicking around, and I'm doing a lot of research on this one, and it's hard to find people official to talk to. So hard that I've almost wanted to just like just make statements on here that are not true where they actually have to come out and <laughs> issue a statement to correct me, and that way I can get my information. And that is just about major IPs on the tabletop, like uh, Game of Thrones, Fallout, you know, and uh, the upcoming uh, Skyrim. These are big, big IPs. Why don't they do better, at least in terms of sales? And so I do have a lot of stuff from Morpheus, who actually has a whole bunch of IPs, and another interview with their head guy in the future to do this out. But yeah, this, I'm starting it as a blog post. It may degenerate in, degenerate to a uh, podcast episode, but we'll see. But that's just what I'm thinking. So moving on to what's on your radar, and the first one we have is the Frog God Games Swords and Wizardry complete 
rule book, and I want to. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't what we talked about last time, and it's still stuck on here. I'm not sure. But anyway, this is a thing that I had found that reminded me a lot of what Roy had been playing with, um, what you call it? Oh, Mike Sheridan from UltraDementia.com. Yeah. Uh, what was that game you guys play? Uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. Yes. This reminded me a lot of it, and it's swords and wizardry. Uh, even the artwork looks the same. It's supposed to be like, this is the game you played 20 years ago. It's true to the original style and philosophy that made the game great. No spot checks here. Simple, flexible rules. So, I was going to toss this in here and see what you guys think. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you can get a, let's see, a digital copy. If you just wanted the PDF, looks like the PDF's free. That's what I'm seeing. If I click on here, yeah, looks like the, the PDF is free. For Pretty Frog good. God games, yeah, it's I'm I'm proceeding to check out. I know you guys love this. This is live uh, purchasing, so yeah, looks like it's free. So you can uh, check that out. It'll be linked in the show notes. Get you a free copy of this, and maybe buy some other stuff. Uh, the next thing was I was going to ask Richard if he was familiar with Lone Canuck Publishing. I'm familiar with them making ASL modules. Yeah. Yeah, that's what caught my attention is somebody posted um, a picture of a scenario pack uh, on Twitter, and I was just amazed at the quality of the uh, maps that they did. And I was like, what in the world? You know, it is. And it was the Anzio uh, 1944. Uh, yeah. That It was uh, that map pack. Yeah, that, I'm not uh, familiar with that one, but a lot of these third-party ASL publishers do some amazing work. Um, another one is Bounding Fire Productions. So some really good scenarios that I've enjoyed playing quite a bit. So now with them, I'm I'm familiar, uh, but as I understand it, they're expensive, and they also do a pretty good amount of um, what you call it uh, historical ones, historical based ones. Uh, yeah, I think they do. Uh, I haven't played any of those, but I think they do. Yeah. But these, uh, I mean, for 18 bucks, you can get the, the one I was talking about, the uh, Anzio 1944 on patrol with the first special service. Um, yeah. And it is a seven-scenario pack dedicated to members of the American-Canadian First Special Service Force and their actions on the Anzio beachhead during the early part of 1944. <coughs> so, yeah, the counters look good. And like, like I said, I saw somebody's picture of the map and really liked it. So these seem to be pretty cheap to uh, to actually get into. Wonder, I mean, some of them are even fourteen bucks. Yeah, I wonder if it says on there. Oh, it looks like they include counters too, so you don't need. Yes, yes, they do. Necessarily have to have one of the because I know a lot of the a lot of stuff will come out and say you have to have you know Beyond Valor and for King and Country to play this because you're going to need those counters. So it looks like this one comes with counters too. Yeah, you'll have to have this thing that's been out of print for seven years and is only, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's only cost like eight hundred bucks on the uh, secondary market. But yeah, I just thought it was neat, and you know, I really, really hope I ASL is in the future for me, where I can, at the very least, get a regular Vassal game or something, because I love everything about it. It's just hard to find somebody that plays it. In fact, it reminded me of something I do. A new person, 
uh, popped up in the area <laughs> on like the uh, the board game Facebook group. Yeah. It's like, hey, I just moved to Jackson, Mississippi. I'm looking for new players. My first question is, so what do you, what kind of games do you play? And I just cross my fingers, like, please say war games, please say war games, please say war games. <laughs> Even though the guy looks way too young to play <laughs> war games. And, um, yeah, that, uh, no, it isn't. It's always like, I like Euro games and party games and, you know, I was like, uh, okay. You know, I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. More power to you, buddy. I'm just, I'm just looking for a new friend. That's all. Not saying anything's against those games. I'm just saying, I'm you disappoint me. I am disappointed. So there you go. Hey, I happen to see that the scenario two in that Anzio uh, says the Germans launch a night attack attempting to bridge the Mussolini Canal led by members of, and it's a gigantic German phrase, um, a unit made up of Luftwaffe personnel serving out their court-martialed sentence on the front line. Dad gum. What kills me is, like, these guys are, uh, I mean, the guy really, really researched this scenario to know enough about this, to put those guys in there, to to write a counter out for him. That's amazing. So what do you suppose it is that these guys did that they got sentenced to, to you know, run up the hill? Luftwaffe personnel. Well, it is 44, and, okay, God help me here. Uh, yes, I have a history degree. It's yes, it's only a bachelor's, so I just <laughs> dabble. Please don't take. I'm not saying this. You're is not true. a historian. You're a fan of history. Yes. To quote Dan Carlin. <laughs> yes. So what I'm gonna say is, since it's 1944, toward the end of the war, and quality had disintegrated in the uh, German army, that maybe these guys were conscripts anyway. Maybe they were like airplane mechanics with like no. As you I say, know, they're probably not pilots. Yeah, that that would be it. Is I would assume they're like just support staff okay. who were probably barely trained at all. Yeah, and so when, they decided. Yeah, what? When I think of Luftwaffe soldiers, I think of airborne, you know, paratroopers. Oh, but I don't know if that's the case there. Hmm. No, 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 no. Uh, I'm almost no, no, no. I'm almost positive, and I only know this because of Flames of War. So please don't yell too hard at your radio or iPhone. The paratroopers were Folsom Jaegers. Yeah. And they were actually not that well, not that well used in World War Two. Uh, I know um, there was the invasion of Crete. Yep. And, like, one other big thing that actually had them? Yeah, the Germans had a couple drops. The Crete, Crete was the biggest one. They had a couple others, but I can't think of what they are right now. You see, what we need is, like, Dan Carlin on here to be, like, fourth Mike, where he could go, it just, you know, he's sitting there, he's, like, reading a book or something, he <laughs> he looks up and lowers his glasses and go, no, Richard, that's wrong. <laughs> Come on, you knuckleheads. So, um, but yeah, it's, I'm going to guess because it's late war, they were either conscripts and, or people that were doing other things that kind of got forced into a, um, a soldier role and they kind of were like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so, and that happened with paratroopers in North Africa. The Germans had paratroopers that fought in North Africa, but they didn't drop in. They just went over there and fought. So, uh, okay, the next thing we had is somebody has a castle on here. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's me. So <laughs> I happened to see a, uh, a YouTube video 
And so there is in Carbondale, Illinois, which is uh, it's maybe about two hours from you, Rich, something yeah, like that. I was I was here a couple years ago, by the way. Oh, at the park? Yeah, it's at Castle Park, uh-huh. Okay. So um, there was a kid that lived there, and he uh, was a great big D&D fan, and he died in a car crash. And his father um, built a park, and then it's a castle park. And so if you look at the images, if you Google uh, Carbondale Castle Park, there are some fascinating sculptures. There's a gigantic dragon. There's um, dungeons. There's all kinds of stuff in this park. Um, and the, the story behind it is really cool. This park honors the memory of a great son, brother, and a friend of many, Jeremy Boo Rockman, 1974 to 1999. Um, so anyway, if you're in the area, check that out. Yeah, it's a pretty cool place. We went camping right next to there. I want to say it was probably two years ago. And then one of the things we did was we left the campground and came to this castle park. We didn't know mm-hmm. about it. We just have to drive past it. And we're like, oh, that was cool. But yeah, it is. It's 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 a good sized park and it's it's really well done. It's cool. Yeah. So I wanted to impart that. <laughs> well, it does remind me of a couple of things, and I'll have them here in the show notes for you to take a look at. The first one is the castle at Raymond, which is about twenty minutes from where I sit right here. Just some crazy guy in Mississippi built it. And um, it, it became a thing for, like, weddings and stuff like that. But it also, like, became a thing for, like, high schoolers to drive out to at night and harass the guy. And I don't know <laughs> who currently owns it or, or whatever. But, yeah, it was a weird thing. It's a, very much a mismatch. Like, I love the thing uh, off in the right corner of it, if you look at it. It's basically like a castle, and then somebody stuck, like, a shed from Sears on the top of a tower. Like, I don't know how you would even get in, like, a greenhouse shed up there, and yeah. So, it's very rednecky. And then the other thing uh, we have in Mississippi was the International Checker Hall of Fame, which looked pretty neat. And that's where people did prom and stuff like that, but it... <laughs> After the guy got, like, federally indicted for some stuff, um, yeah, it's a very interesting story. And uh, it burned to the ground. So we had that. <laughs> oh, no. So, yeah, it, anyway. So on a related note of, of interesting... Um, burning? Road, <laughs> burning? Of, We're against a lot of that. <laughs> yep. No, of uh, roadside attractions. Have either of you guys been to the Georgia Guidestones? No, but I really want to, mainly because they scare, like, closed-minded people so bad. Me too. They're always getting vandalized and stuff. They're like, oh, you Satanists that put these things up. So, for the uninitiated, the Georgia Guidestones are in southern Georgia, and the very mysterious who uh, commissioned the building of these. But this somebody went to, a uh, like, a marble contractor in a nearby town and said, I have this property that I want these monoliths put up and there's maybe, I think there's a dozen in a bunch of all different languages. And it's, it's, um, there's some weird, like it, it kind of smacks a little bit of Scientology and, and weird crap like that. Um, please don't sue me. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, the Georgia Guidestones, I, someday I would like to, uh, as I roll through Georgia, I'd like to check that place out. Basically, what they are is like if the world ended, quote unquote, in the sense of like 
uh, a pandemic, uh, uh, asteroid hit, nuclear holocaust, or whatever, you know, human beings are supposed to crawl out of caves and and run into these things, which will give them wisdom uh, to continue forward. And they they say stuff like, you know, don't you know? I think it's one of the things is like keep the population like below like. 600,000 or 60,000 or something. Um, I don't know. It's it's just general stuff like that. And I think for the most part, they're very... Um, uh, I guess I hesitate to say good. It, it would be um, benign, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And uh, it's just generally... That's what it's for, is you crawl out of the cave, you know, three generations after nuclear winter, and you're wondering how to rebuild society... And you encounter the Georgia Guidestones, and they're supposed to help you. And it's so, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things that Alex Jones would just have a wet dream over. It well, it scares a lot of locals, you know, and just people in the South in general, you know, because they're like, ah, what, you know, what do you mean, and you know, all all this stuff, and they get vandalized and and stuff like that. And it, the base thing is, it's because. You know, people think that it's some kind of satanic New World Order, blah, 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 some, some kind of thing like that. You know, people are... Sometimes people are easily frightened by things they don't understand, <laughs> and that's that's kind of kind of one, you know, right there. And, uh, yeah, I've always thought they're fascinating. You know, so, it's the kind of stuff I, I would hear about, you know, late at night on Art Bell. Yeah. It's like, you know, somebody tossed this stuff up there and, you know, it's, it's a little weird and yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and put a link in there to that too. Yeah. And I'll post it in the show notes. Right. So I guess, um, at this point we talk about Dice Tower Con and oh, I'm actually I have I'm one still... other thing. Okay. Um, what you got? The, uh, Oh yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. The, the Magic the Gathering is coming to Netflix. Yes. Uh, from the, from the Russo brothers that brought you the Avengers. So... <laughs> So, and, uh, my, I, go ahead. So as a guy that knows nothing about Magic the Gathering, does this make any sense? Because a lot of people just saw it and thought, oh, that looks stupid. But for all I know, Magic the Gathering actually has a pretty interesting backstory. So I didn't comment on it because I don't know anything. I'm, I'm curious, though. Well, I, I will say um, I'm just around a, a ton of people that play. And uh, the main thing is, and I, I just got back into it with, like, Arena because Arena is free. And I think I did one local draft, you know, j just for the hell of it. Um, it does have this big, rich lore. And every time they put out, like, a new release of a thing, it's advancing the lore. It's advancing the timeline. They actually have specific cards that have a specific symbol on them. So their flavor text, quote-unquote, is actually a part of the lore. That means something is to be advanced or whatever. So, my favorite thing out of this release is one of those onion-type uh, websites for gamers or whatever um, did an article on the Magic the Gathering uh, anime is to be 12 episodes of nobody having enough lands to do anything. <laughs> So, you know, you know, I will say Magic, I'm it's probably the biggest tabletop game currently. I don't think anything gets anywhere close to it. And uh, yeah, I know I played it 
I started playing it like in 93, 94, and I'm very surprised it, it's still around. I would have never guessed. Because, I mean, everybody was putting out a CCG at that time. Everybody was. And um, Magic is the, the one that survived. So, anyway. On Dice Tower Con, what what are you guys plans? You still making any plans? What, what are y'all doing? Why are y'all waiting so long? I, I plan on... And <laughs> you know, we only have one more show before Dice Tower Con. Yeah, that's oh, true. Wow. So you need you need to make your decision so you can talk about it. I'm I'm honestly steadily at least once a week companies are finally messaging me back about and going, Yeah, we'd love to do some prize support. You know, either tell me who won or come by the booth or do you want me to send it to you, whatever. So that's kind of neat. Oh. So I'm actually getting quite a good bit of stuff to uh, give away. It's starting to stack up. So I'm very, very happy with that. And uh, I guess passing that, you know, you guys need to figure out what is a good night we can go out and eat. Okay. What, what would be a good night for that? And, like, what kind of food are you interested in? You know, my brother lives there. He's lived there for a long time. I could easily steer you to whatever you're looking for. So, Okay. If you just want to drink a lot, you know, or if you try a bunch of beers, you know, the Mississippi beer, uh, not Mississippi, the regional beers, you know, just whatever. So I want to drink probably, a little. We probably shouldn't discuss it on the podcast, though, because our thousands and thousands of fans will mob the restaurant. Tens of, <laughs> Roy, Roy's Rockettes, Extra you know. Pretty and everything. Them. Where you come out there. So, yeah, just, just something to think about. Hobo Steve will come out and panhandle us. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll be ready for that. Uh, so, um, blues hockey still going on, huh? Blues hockey still going on, which is, wow. You know, I am 46 years old. I've been waiting my entire life for the blues to play hockey in June. So, I'm quite happy. They got, they're up 3-2. to two. They're playing here in St. Louis tomorrow. If they win, the Blues will be champions. Back to Boston for Game Seven. Either way, this has been the greatest Blues season in living memory for me. So, let's go Blues! So you got, you got your courtside tickets. So tickets, or, 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 the average ticket price for a game tomorrow, the average ticket price is about forty three hundred dollars right now. Wow, Dad, gum. That so, will buy me an entire ASL collection. <laughs> There was uh, whoever's airing the games. Was it NBC? NBC, there, yeah. So there was a there was a kid that was a Boston fan, and he's standing there giving the finger to, yeah. <laughs> to every every I Blues hockey. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I saw that. Is in the game before the game in St. Louis. Brett Hull, who is one of St. Louis's all-time biggest stars, he still works for the organization. Everyone loves him. He also likes to have a drink or two, and uh, sometimes during the game, there's pictures of him standing up in the stands, slipping off the Boston bench. <laughs> so, and if you look at my Twitter, not not my avatar, but the banner on my on Twitter, that's the picture of Brett Hall slipping off the Boston bench. Ah, but nice. yeah, both in Boston. I mean, the cities uh, we're not really rivals or anything like St. Louis and Chicago, but. I don't think the cities like each other very much. We do have some history, especially like with the Rams and the Patriots in recent memory, um, uh, the Cardinals and the Red Sox in recent memory, and now the Blues and the Bruins. And just the two teams are both very big, very physical teams, and it's a 
it's a hard hitting series and I think everyone pretty much hates each other as to the appropriate level. So hopefully only one more game. So the they're tied now or what's the what's the score now? Blues are up three to two. Okay. Yeah, because the Blues won in Boston, uh, what Thursday night, I guess, and have a chance to finish it up here tomorrow night. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I'll be watching that. That's pretty much the top of my on my radar. But as far as actual gaming stuff, um, I've got Liberty Roads on my table right now. I've, I'm learning that one because we've got our STL War Gamers uh, week next month, and we're going to be trying to play some D-Day games. So I'm going to be bringing some ASL D-Day stuff, but I'm also going to be bringing Liberty Roads. Liberty Roads is a it's a Hexton game. They're a French company, um, and it's just uh, it's just it's a game that takes place. You can do uh, the short scenario actually takes place after D-Day. It's Operation Cobra, the breakout. But the full scenario involves the invasion and everything. What's interesting about this one is they don't they don't make you stick to the historical invasion. You can invade wherever you want, which I think is kind of cool. Hmm. And then upcoming for me is the next coin game, the Gandhi coin game, which people always laugh when I think of the Gandhi war game. Uh, that one is shipping from GNC right now. I haven't gotten the order. My order is not shipping yet, but I imagine sometime within the next week or two, I'll be getting that one. So I'm a big fan of the coin games. Looking forward to that one. The one after that one is going to be the, the Russian Finnish war. That's going to be the first three player coin game. Um, but I don't know when that's coming out. Something later this year, probably. And then- now I, I will say in that uh, he has a new, uh, medieval game coming out. Volk. Volka does, yeah, Nev- and it's it's not coin, right? Nevsky. That's a- what what kind of game is that? So it's uh, it's I think it's a new system he's working on. It's based around so basically, and it takes place I think 1200s Russia, um, but back during that time, wars had sort of like a 40 day cycle around them because they would gather up their their peasants to join the army. And then they would basically only conscript them for about 40 days at a time. Because then they had to go back home and, you know, take care of the crops and everything. So so it's based on these sort of series of 40-day wars. That's my understanding of it. But obviously, Volko is my favorite designer. So pretty much anything he puts out, I'm going to take a look at. I've got that one C500 as well. So this says it was not designed by Volko, though. It says Bruce Mansfield. Nevsky or Gandhi? What's that? Uh, Gandhi, excuse me. Oh, yeah. So so Volko developed the coin system, um, but since since then, other people have designed okay. the coin. Yeah. So this one, yeah, Bruce Mansfield. Uh, the next one that's coming out, I don't know. Volko's son was a designer on one of them, and uh, Mark Herman was a designer on one of them. So. But yeah, Volko developed the coin system. Okay. So uh, that's your friend, Bruce? He He designed that game? No, Bruce did not design. Oh, Bruce Mansky? No, no, that's a different. Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, that's what you heard. Yeah, he that's, that's... he he designed that one every bit as much as I designed Brave Little Belgium. Okay. <laughs> so speaking well. of people that I do know that design games, there's another game coming out. Uh, it just came out a couple of days ago called Bar Lev. It's a 1973 war in Israel, and this one was designed by a friend of mine as well. This is. Uh, one of the local guys here, he's, he's one of the guys, and he's actually whose house we're going over to play Arden 44, um, but Chris Fawcett designed this game, and it just came out as well, too. So he's been talking about it for a while. I'm looking forward to getting it. I don't have my copy yet, but 
I saw him, the game came out on the 5th, or at least Compass started selling it on the 5th. I saw him on the 6th. And I say, hey, Chris, you know, congratulations on your game. How's the look? And he goes, oh, I don't have a copy yet. He's still waiting in line for his copy. So huh. I think that was funny. <laughs> but that one's on the yeah. radar as well. I was going to mention, like, with the Gandhi thing is, I mean, you don't think about a war game with Gandhi, right. but I was, I, I was very interested in it because it reminds me of, um, was it the Civilization? Civilization, yep. Yeah. Gandhi always gets nukes. Yeah, he's like the, the supreme nuker. Yeah. And from what I hear, that, that came from a bug where they designed <laughs> his character. They wanted him to be like the absolute never, never, ever nuke. But then something happened and, like, the integer wrapped around or something. So instead of, like, going to negative two, it went to, like, 128,000 or whatever. Um, but I think that's how that happened from what I've heard. A, a never nuke. Is that, like, a never nuke? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, kind of a thing. Blue Gina, we're on. <laughs> yeah. All right, so before we hit news, we actually have a uh, pretty good interview to toss to. And since we've been talking so much here, that, yeah, this is going to be like a three-hour um, show, but that's okay. You, yeah, everybody loves three-hour shows. That's how I they do things now. All want. You can pause and come back to it. You know, so um, what uh, we have an interview with, and I want to disclaim this like before we get into it. This, this interview is with Mike Denson, the designer of The Last 100 Yards, which is coming out from GMT. It's not out. And shipping. It's it's not out. Yeah, it's, I said it's coming out, so it's shipping, right? Yeah, it's, I know people. Okay. Well, not personally, but I, people have been getting their copies. So yeah. Okay. So um, it's shipping out, and uh, we decided to reach out and interview this this gentleman. And I need to disclaim on this actual interview what the situation is. Uh, Mike is what is he 70 i think he's about 70 something years old and he lives yeah. in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and he he has satellite internet so our skype call is spotty sometimes at best and i i did my best to kind of edit it through this i mean the main thing that i had to edit out was when we asked him a question there was like a three or four second delay till he heard us and was able to respond back so hopefully that sounds a little, a little you know better. And uh, but yeah, the quality is not the greatest. Certainly not what you hear now. But it is the absolute best we could do, other than flying out to Texas or whatever, and then driving out to the middle of nowhere, and uh, interviewing him. But it's it's really good if you like details. He goes way into how he came up with the game, how it plays, and and all that good stuff. So it's long and detailed and. If you're even casually interested in it, you'll find it uh, to be fascinating. Well, so. I got to know, what is his stance on child burning? <laughs> we didn't ask. Okay. You wanna, yeah, you just, it's not something I throw out. That's, that's, that's the older crowd. You know, All right. you can't throw that out. They have to be a millennial or, or thereabouts to toss that out. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And I should have asked him what his opinion on the T-shirt would be, you know, with just the blank, blank. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Um, before we toss to this, I was also going to say, um, actually, you know what? I'll say it at the end of the interview. It's something you want to stick around for, so I'm going to toss to this now. This is the hidden content. <laughs> All right, joining us on the podcast is Mike Denson. 
And the reason why I wanted to reach out to Mike and interview him is because I saw Joel Toppin unbox a copy of The Last Hundred Yards. And I was really struck by the artwork, and I asked him a few questions about it. And once he said it was, you know, kind of squad-based scale, sort of like ASL, I was like, yes, I'm very interested. So I went on Board Game Geek, and I'm like, who is this guy, Mike Denson? And so I reached out to him. And I thought we'd all just find out who Mike Denson is. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you. Tell tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, this is your your first game that you've you've ever done. Just kind of tell me about like yourself, like how old you are, and you know where you're from, and how long you've been gaming. Man, I'm old, dude. I'm seventy. Uh, I'm from East Texas, Palestine, about an hour and forty five minutes southeast of Dallas. Uh, I've probably been gaming since I was 14. I think a friend came across what well, had uh, Gettysburg, Avalon Hill Gettysburg, and he had um, oh, the Africa Corps, and I I was hooked. So we've been playing ever since. So what is that, 56 years, I guess? Um, I play all kind of games, probably more in the mechanic, uh, American Civil War, World War II, uh, some ancients. This, I guess probably of all my preference, I like the operational games better. And that's kind of odd being that I'm I'm, t- I'm now dealing with a tactical game. But I played years of ASL. Uh, and let's see, I'm an A-Texas A&M graduate. Um, I was self-employed for about the last 37 years. Uh, I'm a headhunter. I recruited petroleum engineers for the oil and gas industry in Texas and surrounding states. Anything else? Oh, married. I got married, three children. Uh, One's in San Diego, uh, one's in Houston, and one's in Austin. How long have you been working on the last hundred yards? Is this something that's kind of been in the back of your mind for a long time, or is this recent to you? No, it's really out of necessity. <laughs> so I lived in Bastrop, a small town outside of Austin. I was real active in the ASL group there because I have a really good friend, Rick Reinish, who was a major contributor to this game. Uh, and I moved, we had property back home near Palestine, and my mother's elderly. She, she'll be 89 this uh, in September. So it was a good fit. We decided to move back. I live in the country. I'm like 12 miles from the nearest store. And my brother used to play a little bit. He lives here. And then I got my cousin had an opportunity to reconnect with him. I hadn't seen him in like 30, 40 years. He's a Vietnam vet. So we started, I said, I, he'd never seen a game before. And we just kind of visited and played a few games, and he liked the tactical, but he, he didn't want to have to read rules or anything. He just wanted to come and visit and push some counters. So we literally, I, I gave up on like ASL and some of the others, and I literally just pulled some counters from from one game and, and a map from another, and, you know, I said, well, here's, <laughs> we just made it up. And that's kind of what we did, and after a while, I, you know, I couldn't remember everything that we'd said for our rules, so I had to start writing them down. And then, you know, after a while, I had more rules and kind of got interesting, and my brother started playing. He's really good. He's a good breaker. You know, if you got a game you're trying to develop, I guarantee you he could break it. So um, 
it got better. And so finally I, 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 I said, um, you know, maybe this is a game and I've known, I know Dean, we're not best friends by any means, but I know and respect Dean Essig. And I'd been to a couple of his events they used to hold in Homer, Illinois. So I called Dean out of the blue and I said, Dean, I think I got a game and I'm not looking for you to market it, but I really respect you as a designer and you'd be the, you'd be the test. And so he was just in the middle of getting BCC out at the time and actually took the time and said, well, come on up. Uh, you know, I offered to pay him for his time. And I went up and spent a day and a half in his kitchen, he and Sarah, and we pushed, we played two or three, four scenarios. And uh, he seemed to really like the game and actually, you know, made, actually wrote a comment that was very favorable and encouraged me to move on. And about a month after that or two was – the, I guess the GMT gaming event there in California and I noticed that some designers was going and I thought well that I didn't want to go to anybody but GMT I just thought they just really I mean they're a lot of good games company but I felt I'd get the most exposure through GMT more than anybody else and so I, just, I called them and said I wanted to come and paid my fee and told them I was a designer and <laughs> I got in California and I kind of cornered Gene and said, hey, I got a game here. And Dean said, you ought to look at it. So they did. And here we are today. So I guess now I've been working with GMT probably going on three, four years. Hell, I lose time. I've been working on it so long. So a bit, it's been about inception of about seven or eight years. That's a long story, but that's how we are where we are today. All right. Well, um, are there any other games that you play like regularly? I know you play, you know, Advanced Squad Leader, and, and you're big into that. Is there any other thing that you you kind of interest yourself in? Any like miniature games or stuff like that? Well, I sold all my ASL stuff, you know, because I, <laughs> if I'm going to have this game, I don't need to be playing ASL. But uh, ASL was a good game. You had a lot of bang for the buck. Pardon? No, I was just joking. I said, now nah, you can buy it back. That's what most people, when they sell their ASL, they do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, it, it's, I've moved on. And to answer the other question, you know, I think I've played one or two other games in the last seven or eight years. You know, pretty much as I live in the country, you know, it, it's hard to find opponents. Right now, it's just my brother and I. We did majority of the play test. So pretty much... Yeah, I'd like to play other games, but at this moment, I'm working on the next module. Uh, about all the time I had was to do <laughs> to play this one. <laughs> so for the next module, are you looking at more World War II scenarios, or do you have uh, can this can your system be put into Korea, Vietnam, modern, anything else? Well, I think the the, the base, the heart of the system, can probably work well in any. Uh, whether it be modern or whatever, it, it's it's a very good chaos model, uh, which is really what command is today. Uh, those that command can can manage the chaos best are going to generally win. Um, what the next module will be, what we're working on now, it's going to be airborne in Normandy, and and uh, we'll and then we'll have the 82nd at. Uh, Nijmegen and the 101st at Eindhoven. So there'll be 10 or 12, probably 10 missions on those, including airdrops and some stuff. 
That way we can kind of commercially take advantage of the counters and stuff we have. Now, we will add airborne counters, but that'd be the next. And probably after that, I'd want to move to Russia. That's probably my most favorite front. Go ahead. Okay. So you, you talked about the chaos. I've seen pictures of the game. I haven't seen any gameplay videos or anything, so I've just heard I've heard that initi- it's initiative-based, and then you, you're mentioning the chaos. Can you give us an idea of what the, the sort of the hook of the game is, your initiative system, your controlling the chaos, how that works? Yeah, I'll kind of highlight the major system in it. Um, so these most game have initiatives, and most games with initiative, whether you have one or multiple impulses, it's kind of I go, you go. Uh, in the last hundred yards, generally, for example, you, generally we give it to the attacker, but you have each player is going to roll a ten-sided die. Generally, the attacker will get a plus two, provided he had the initiative on the previous turn. And this is reflected by an, an initiative marker, okay? If he didn't have the initiative on the previous turn, he doesn't get his plus two. So once you, you have the momentum as the attacker, but once you lose it, it's a little bit harder to get back. So that's the concept. Uh, well, so if you win the initiative, you become the active player. And actually, you're the only player that gets a player. The other player does not get a player turn, so you might get three or four player turns in a row. Now, the other player, although he doesn't get a player turn, he can't activate his units. He has less control. He's reacting. So for the reacting mechanic, you got to see an enemy unit do something. If you didn't see him do anything, you can't do anything. Okay? So imagine that you got a right flank over here, you know, 300 yards from your left flank. Uh, the left flank gets attacked. Uh, the right flank, you know, they're in a tree line. They hear all the noise and shooting, but they're not going to get out of their foxholes unless somebody tells them to get out. Or if you play a board game normally, you know, hell, by the time by the time I attack on this guy's left, he's already moved his right over there. So this kind of restricts some of that. Okay. Uh, there are exceptions. If you act with the leader, uh, you can react whether you see anything or not. So... The initiative, it's a big advantage if you are able to activate all your troops in the order. Uh, the other guy can only react. But it's tough on the attacker once he loses that initiative to get it back. So uh, that's the initiative piece. Any comment on that? Is there something that you can do in-game besides the dice roll to make sure you keep the initiative? No. Okay. Okay, what role does yeah, armor... Jim, so, before we get to the armor, I heard that question coming, yeah. okay? <laughs> Let me talk about a couple other basic factors in, in the game. Uh, when you... And it, and it, there's really no game turn. We have a variable clock. So, at the end of the game turn, quote, um, you roll a die, and it... And, Compare it to the time lapse. It could be anywhere from two to five minutes. Time is a variable, and it's not constant in combat. So, you know, sometimes it works for you. Sometimes it works against you. So it's just like if 
your force is moving forward, you're not meeting much resistance, you know, you can get more done. And so it's only two minutes, maybe, based on you making a low die roll. Or you get hung up somewhere and you're, you're waiting on somebody to finish smoking a cigarette. You know, maybe you rolled high and it cost you five minutes per turn. So that, that's a variable in time that's uh, it's, it, it's, it's a little different, I think, than others. Uh, the other big factor is how victory, you know, what's the victory conditions? How does that work? Uh, each mission, uh, you have an objective, and the game generally, I'll say the game, the mission can generally end in one of three ways. Uh, you achieve your objective. Let's say you're supposed to capture three buildings, and at the end of the game turn, you have those three buildings in ends. That doesn't mean you won. It just means the mission ends. Um, the other is each force or each nationality, and, and it varies depending on the mission, has a different what you would call casually differential limit. And if one side or the other exceeds that, it automatically ends and the person exceeds loses the mission. And the other is generally... It's generally there's a maximum VPs that you could have, and once you get over that, then the attacker would lose because the VPs is based on the attacker. So how that works is, is that it's a combination of time lapse of the clock and combination of differential or in, in loss differential. Units have steps. Squads are generally two steps, and most all other units are single steps. So every time... The attacker loses a step. You would move it one box to the left. Every time the defender loses a step, you would move it one box to the right-hand corner of each little box. There's a smaller number, and that's basically equivalent to victory points. So, for their, if, if it's in box one, there's four called casualty points or CPs. If you're in box two, it's six and generally it's about three on after. So the way you calculate victory is that you, you, you can't squander your forces because if you take a big licking on forces, well, I'll, I'll, I'll cover that. So it's a combination of how much time it took you to achieve the mission. In other words, for it to end. Uh, once it ends, you then take the time and you add or subtract the CP points to see if you win. So I'll give you an example. The mission, you can win this mission if you can do it with a final score of 30 or less. Okay. So let's say that you, the mission ended, you met your objective. There was no casually differential ex, ex, exception, okay, or no one seated that. But it so it was 28 minutes. So basically you won, except you took one more casually than the defender did. Okay. So now you're going to have to, I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah, you took one more casually than he did. So you're going to have to add those four CPs. So now you're 28 plus four is a 32. So what was a victory because of your casualty difference is now just a draw. Um, Let's say that the final score ended at 36, and you needed 30 or less to win. But you killed two more of the enemy than you lost, 
So you could subtract six from the score, which would give you 30 and you would win. So unlike lots of games, casualties do count. So, you know, if you were callous to your troops and, and risking their lives, uh, you probably would probably would be fragged somewhere. So it kind of that you kind of really have to watch your losses to hang in the game. And um, it's just another piece of the chaos. So I hope I'm not talking too long, but that should give you an idea uh, of the major pieces. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask about like the, uh, the role of armor in the game. I just noticed like in the, looking at the counters and the scale, you've got, you know, uh, like half tracks, tanks and uh, stuff like that. Um, the armor, uh, the armor I find is probably the most difficult piece to design at this level. Uh, and, you know, most people in dealing with armor at this scale, I'm not going to say most people, but I mean, say other games, they seem to be more focused on the technical aspects of the tank, thickness of the armor in the front or the sides, the speed of the vehicle, uh, the powerful, you know, what kind of gun and what kind of penetration it can do. And so you base those values on more of the specs of the vehicle. Okay. So, <clears throat> but you can't recreate history by, by basing it on the specs of the vehicle. Uh, and a good rough example is that you take the East Front, uh, you know, the Germans were out produced probably two to one and they lost and then that, but they were able to kill seven to one. In other words, for seven Russian losses, they would lose one. So you, so you can't recreate that if all, if the tanks are equal. So for example, a T-34, you would say is ever bit as good as a Panzer IV or better, or a J.S. Stalin's or good or better than a, than a Panther. Uh, so if you look at that, if they're all equal, how did the Germans kill seven to one when they were out for two to one? So my whole point I'm making is that it's based on the crews. Russians were extremely poorly trained. Only veteran that ever made it was one that survived and learned, you know, on the field. Um, where the Germans had better, <clears throat> they had better um, communication, not just radios, but better communication tactics at that level. Uh, better, much better trained uh, tank leaders. And so uh, my armor is a little different. So I'll, I massage the factors on the armor to reflect the historical outcome. So how would that play in a mission? Well, you know, I would probably, I think it'd be fair if you're up against a, a Panther that there might be three or four Shermans because the allies seem to always have the numbers advantage. And so that's a better representation. Represent well, you know, it'd probably take three, three, uh, three good, three good Sherman tankers to take out a good Panther. So you have to look and kind of take those losses and and massage the factor numbers to create that. Um, the tankers, they, they, um, everybody thinks that this. There's, some people say, well, there needs to be overwatch fire in the game because uh, you can only fire at a unit in the last hex entered. 
you can't fire it if it moves across the open. There is an exception, but it's minor, and I won't go into that. Um, I've reduced the movement in the armor, you know, to a small amount, smaller snapshot. So they don't, they move five, they have five movement points. Um, two reasons. I mean, you know, I've time and smaller bites. Yeah, they can move more than 250 yards in five minutes, but maybe not under combat uh, circumstances. I mean, they are humans inside that tank, and they're just not going to race across there because that tank can run that fast. You know, there's enemy out there. So uh, in combat time, yeah, maybe they only move that 250 meters in, in five minutes or whatever. Because most of the missions are in a combat zone. You know, they're not in rear areas where you could drive full speed. Anyway, did that answer some of your questions? <laughs> I know I rambled. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, the historical outcome. Are your scenarios based on historical engagements, or do you just mean, in general, what would it look like for three Germans and one Panzer four? Well, I have this. Unfortunately, you know, at this scale, it's rare to find anything that is, you know, battles that you go read wherever that it's got enough detail that you can recreate a, an event at a company or a platoon level. Sure. That's been a challenge. So to answer, answer your question, no, um, most of the scenarios, you know, I um, or at least the first modules, because I, I didn't know what I was doing, and it may end up being the best thing anyway. I, you know, I created some really interesting scenarios that, that, that you just made, you know, made up maps and whatever. And then, you know, once I decided it was a good keeper and it was a good scenario, I kind of found a struggle event that, that was that you could represent, you know, this took place, you know, uh, outside of best uh, in Netherlands, for example. And so that answered the question. In other words, I came up with a mission first and then I looked and found some historical spot that that could occur. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I was just curious. Um, I know some people are, are more concerned about fighting an actual historical battle. Even in ASL, you see that where there's a difference between ASL and historical ASL. And honestly, at the at the end, it's always going to be a game, and a lot of historical engagements were completely one-sided and wouldn't make much of a fun scenario to play. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to a certain extent, that aspect in the game is similar to what uh, ASL does in that respect. Um, and no, it's not fun to you know get hammered and. Nobody likes that. Um, <clears throat> so I don't think uh, it's just hard to find historical actions. You know, if you look at some of the ASL module uh, campaigns, they can't account for every squad there. I mean, you know, you just have to get close and approximate. And so you know, it's just a matter of straying a little bit further. What, what's important to me is that people can play this game and really understand the tactical, you know, and learn to, learn to use the tools and the, the tactical tools in the toolbox to achieve their objective and, you know, and win that particular mission. 
Okay, it's no different than company commander says you got to go take and hold this crossroad. So, uh, and, and those are the things that you don't find histories about. You can't you can't find something where that platoon had to go out on a recon that night. Now we know they occurred nightly, but can you find any documentation on that? No. So you just have to create those situations, and I think that's what's most exciting is being put in the position of that company commander and using some of the mechanics such as how the victory condition works relative to the time and losses. You know, that company commander can't spend his whole full. You can't, you can't lose nine squads and have a half a squad left in the building and call that a victory. Yeah. That makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I, I saw in your scenarios, just from, Again, gauging some of the pictures, you've got you've got one mappers, you've got three mappers, four mappers. What's the approximate time to play one of your scenarios? Uh, some of the one mappers, you know, if you're two experienced players, play them in an hour, hour and a half. Uh, some of the much larger ones, you know, um, the counter mix allows you to have two companies per side and a whole but let's see, and a company of tanks. So that's about as big as you can get currently. Uh, there's a, there's a, a one or two that are large. I, I couldn't, you know, good experienced players. I can't tell you four to six hours, maybe on the bigger okay. ones. It's just going to depend. Players are much slower than others. <laughs> are there any other games in you? Do you think, do you think this is kind of uh, the only kind of one and done? Or do you have some others kicking around that you might want to do? Um, I'm, I really, I really like the, the engine. I really like the engine. Uh, and I've already looked at ways to uh, maybe, maybe um, in, a, in, a, in a company level. Uh, you know, or maybe even a civil war. Civil war is more difficult because you really had not a lot of small engagements where if you can deal with companies, you can probably deal with that. But civil war companies would be, you know, fine in smaller battles. But, yeah, I've thought about it, but it's really a matter of time. Uh, you know, if if this game is successful, people are going to want more missions. And... That would be my intent. So good or bad, I, I would probably dedicate my time and resources to, you know, do some stuff in Italy, you know, using the last hundred yards activity operations in Italy, uh, North Africa, Japan, especially the East Front. And, you know, see whether or not that it might uh, it probably transfer fairly easily to uh, Korea. Uh, modern day, uh, you know, in some ways, I guess instead of firing bullets, you're just firing missiles, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> instead of uh, forward observers, you've got some drone up there. So I don't know how modern tactical, uh, you know, we really know how, how modern combat is against uh, insurgents, you know. But there's not been, you know, unless you look at Kuwait. It's really not been a modern battle hardly since Korea. 
with all the technology on the ground today, I can't imagine what that'd be like. Well, I know it sold pretty well. We were looking right before we started the interview, and I think uh, GMT has sold just under a thousand copies as of uh, May thirty first. Yay! <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see this one. I know it's shipping now. I'm sure we'll see it in miniature market and and uh, but yeah, so probably pick up some copies soon enough, and we'll start seeing seeing this on the tables. Um, but so yeah. have y'all have y'all have y'all purchased a copy? No, like I haven't actually seen it yet. I actually just started hearing about this game a couple weeks ago. I'm on Gmail uh, GMT's email letter and everything, um, but it was just a couple weeks ago that I started hearing about this. So. Um, like I said, I, I live actually right by Miniature Market, so when it shows up on the shelf there, I'll probably take a look at it then. Right. The uh, So do you like tactical games? I do. I'm a big ASL fan, um, and I've actually, it's funny, Adam and I were just talking a couple weeks ago about doing sort of a compare and contrast between um, the, the World War II tactical games, you know, ASL, uh, ATS, Lock and Load. There's others out there that I can't think of the name of, and 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 this one will go right in that mix as well. So they all have their their strengths, and it, it would be a pretty interesting comparison between all of them. I think. Well, I, I you know, I'm not going to get in comparison. <laughs> That's not fair. So I'll just say, you know, some of the, some of the things I've strived for here is to, you know. I like to focus on the objectives and on the tactics, you know, and so I've intentionally abstracted as much as possible. I could add all kind of detail, you know, you think of some of the other games where, you know, you're firing at a tank and you're looking up all this stuff and looking at this and that and you're rolling and die and, you, you, you know, you're moving a few hexes and he wants to shoot again, you know. I just try to think, how could I resolve that in just one dialogue, okay, and not lose anything? Well, for example, let's say that you move a vehicle in another game across six open hexes and you say, well, there's three guys that fire, so you get to fire in three different hexes, okay? So let's say that's, uh, you know, based on that game, it's a 20% chancer for each one, okay? Well, I'd much rather just wait till he gets in the last hex and just have one die roll. Now, that single die roll would have the same percent chance as the three sequential 20 percenters. That makes yeah. sense? Yeah. So I wanted to abstract as much as possible and really focus on the the, the player. I, I, and another thing, too, you know, I don't I like to minimize the number of die rolls. They're distracting to me. All the interruptions are distracting from the game uh, and especially having to go refer to rules. Uh, you know, I, the rules ended up being about eight seven pages longer than I wanted, but it was just necessary. But still, there's a lot in the rules, but it's not real long, and it's not a particularly, maybe a little difficult early to learn because it's so different from other games. But um, so anyway, that's, uh, I wanted to abstract as much as possible uh, less, least interruptions as possible, uh, quick fire resolution, you know, so I can focus on the things. It, I just want, yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. That's one of the things that I think is interesting in the comparison of all 
those games is four or five, six games that cover the same time period, the same scale and everything. Every designer is going to have his own idea of what is the most important thing to focus on. And that's what makes the games different. So obviously ASL is <laughs> wants to focus on everything. Um, your, your, your goal, it sounds like is, is to get people into it quicker, resolve it quicker. And, um, you know, sounds like that's what you're, you're Look, going. I played ASL. I played it. I played ASL for 30 years. ASL is a, is, is a great game. Um, you know, it's every game is different. Uh, I, you know, I, all I can say at this point is, is it, you know, I, I, I can get just as much thrilling bang for the buck playing this game with a whole lot less effort. Uh, if, if, that kind of makes any difference. So absolutely, and I like that. I wanted to ask you about the maps because um, they're really gorgeous. Uh, how did those come about? Did you come up with the basic design? Did you design? Did you do the whole thing, or did you come up with the basic design of the map and someone at GMT fleshed it out and colored it in for you? How's that work? Okay, so um, you know, at the time I made these maps, they were just for me. I didn't, I didn't make them to. I didn't make them for anybody but just me. So I, I've got 52 of them already. <laughs> uh, I had a friend taught me how to use Corel Draw. Okay? okay. And, but, you know, and so I pretty much made maps in Corel Draw. And so at some point, you know, I said, well, I, you know, I want, I want something that's pretty that looks like, I like, I'm a map guy. I like topos. So I, I bumped into this lady in Houston, her husband was uh, Liz Stefanoff. Well, not her husband. Her name is Liz Stefanoff. She's a graphic artist, but she just does it part-time. Her husband was a, a medical student in the University of Texas, Galveston, and now he's an internship in San Diego. So I bumped into her and kind of described what I wanted, and she just kind of works part-time in freelance, and so that's what we came up with. Um, uh, the maps are quite interesting. The contours really come into play in this game. Uh, I can't get in great detail. It would be hard to explain, but you have levels, which are the dark, the dark contour. It's levels like you would find in most games, okay? And they work pretty much the same. But they're minor, the minor contours in between the in between the other well, the light lines, light contour, uh, only affect line of sight if both firing and and defending target on the same level. You know, on a different level, the minor contours are ignored. But what it does is that it's much it's much more realistic terrain, and it really adds a new dimension to the game because. Now you just don't use terrain now for defense. Now you use terrain for maneuver. So, so why is that? Well, remember, if I'm moving my unit and you can't see, you can't move. You can't do anything all turn. You just sit there. So if I, for example, got to go three times in a row and I'm, I'm going up some little creek bed or something and you can't see me, uh, I can probably get behind you before you know it. So that's hard to do in most face-to-face -face games. 
because he's always going to react because he can see you coming. You see what I mean? So the train, it makes it tighter. There's little ravines you can go up in between or saddles, uh, not hide behind. So uh, it just adds another dimension to the game. I can't wait to actually get my hands on this and, and give it a shot. It's different. As I said, I, I, I didn't start out to design a game. I never really intended to design a game. And I, I know I'm the designer here, but I just think it's a better mousetrap. Uh, and we'll find out if everybody feels the same way. Um, there's it, it From learning to play the game, first you kind of got to get over that there's a lot of systems that's not like others. Okay, so that kind of have to get your head around. And then once you kind of get comfortable, because really the system, it's the heart is, is just the activation cycle, which is a little loop. The activation cycle is the meat of the game. You win the initiative. Let's say I, I say I have a company of imagery. That's three platoons. I win the initiative. First thing I get to do is roll for coordination. If I roll a high enough number, I can activate two platoons as if they're just one. If you don't win coordination, you have to activate a single platoon. That's three squads in that platoon and a leader. And if in any support weapons now, support weapons are not individual weapons, it's teams. So if you see a machine gun counter, that's four to six men in that team, okay? Because that really represents uh, a medium to heavy machine gun, a tripod type gun. Whereas the light machine gun, which is for the Germans, the MG 34 and 42, is inherent in every German squad. And that's why you'll see the values a little better on the German squad, not in strength, but in range, because it's more subtle, <clears throat> because they just had a better light machine gun than certainly the Americans did and anybody else. But so the way it works is it, I activate a and I, you can either move or you can fire or you can recover if you're disrupted, for example. All right. Now there's a lot of there's two or three different types of moves uh, you can do. Now, when I I do my all my actions with my guys, and when I'm done, I'm going to call for reaction from you. Any unit you have on the map that saw me do something can now react. You can either move, you can fire, or you can recover. There's only three actions in the game. Now there's subparts of those actions. Maneuvers, there's two or three different types, okay? Uh, for example, for infantry, one of the types is what they call a withdrawal, okay? So although you only get, depending on whether you're the active player or the reactive player, you're going to get three movement points for the active unit and only two movement points for the reacting unit as far as they can move. But if you choose to withdraw, it's, three, it's four hexes to the rear, Hexes, not not movement points, because you can always disengage. Historically, you can always disengage faster than the enemy can advance. Yeah, he can walk as fast as I can, but not in unknown territory. So this another mechanic in the game, subtle, that most that you now have the ability to withdraw a couple times and fall back and set up another position in line quicker than that guy can get there. Okay, <clears throat> so. I activate my three squads. One does one. They do whatever. One fires, one moves, and uh, the other one I hold in reserve. 
So I call for reaction. Now you can fire move or whatever. And then you, when you're done with yours, you call reaction back. Well, I can only react to what you did. Now, if I'm the active player, generally makes sense for me to react at that time. Although I did say I kept one squad in reserve. He couldn't react now. So you reactivate a platoon, the other player reacts, and then you react, and the other player reacts. And when both gets to act reacting, that is one activation cycle. That platoon is done. Now I go to the second platoon, okay? and I'll, it's, it's a loop. So you just do a platoon at a time, more or less, uh, as far as how you activate. And you can't, if I activated this first platoon, and now I've already moved to the second platoon, you can't go back and shoot at anybody in the first platoon, okay? They're done. So you really, it's kind of a simultaneous feel. Um, you know, if you don't take that shot when he did his action, okay, and 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 another cycle comes up, you can't go back and take that shot at him. You missed it. You just let him pass like you would in a, you know, here comes the enemy walking out of this field over here. He's 150 yards away. You know, I decide not to shoot because I'm afraid there's going to be some others going to come out. But once you pass, miss that opportunity, it's too late. So you have this little activation cycle, and you just kind of repeat that more or less. Uh, and that's that's the heart of the game. What else can I share? Well, uh, how many missions actually come with with ship with the game? There are twelve missions in the first module. And uh, are there going to be any more? Do you have plans to release like any more on the web or anything like that, or through a supplement, perhaps? Well, at this juncture, you know, we're working on the module two, which will have another ten missions, for example. Uh, what I'm really hoping for, and I'll just advertise here, okay? <laughs> uh, what I really hope is that this game, where my vision is that this game catches on, and there are cadres of people out there that, you know, like the game and want to contribute for the community, not signing the game. <laughs> kind of like ASL, you know, you have a lot of third-party uh, people providing missions and scenarios. So I, I'm hoping that I can get to the point where I've got two or three cadres, and I'll say a cadre means it's not just somebody who wants to help. He's got two or three guys with him because they're going to need to play test, okay? And I would I would try and give each one a – I hope to give each one a project. So maybe I'd call you and I'd say, Adam, hey, would you and Richard be interested in doing something uh, in Italy? Maybe, maybe how about, about Tunis? Okay, give me 10 in Tunis. Uh, or, you know, one of the things that I'm looking at is kind of um, not a campaign, because a campaign, there's no campaigns at squad level, but more of an operational thing that's where it might be a longer, kind of like the ASL campaigns where, you know, you, you have a lull, you do these things, and you have a lull, and you reset, and you keep going, like Stalingrad or whatever. So, you know, I want to work on a system like that as well. Um so, um, as I said, you know, I'm looking for cadres because if we can do that, you know, I can put we can put out a couple a year, two or three a year. And um, although the way the game plays, there's lots and lots of replay value on a mission because you're not going to ever figure it out. It never works the same every time, I assure you. So, and then we have to do your own, which I think. Uh, um, quite different 
uh, it's a bid system. Players would need to get to be fairly fairly good at, 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 at the game to be good at the DYO because the DYO, all the forces are known, the, the mission's known. You know everything about the game. Both players do. Okay. And then you have to bid to the attacker is, and you bid in victory points. So if I bid 35 and you bid 40, you know, I am now the attacker. And for me to win that, do your own mission, I have to get, I have to have 30, what, yeah, 35 victory points or less. So you have to kind of get good at knowing, well, I got to cover this much distance. I'm going to, I have this force. I know approximately his force, but in the, in the DYOs, you get points to buy buy extra stuff like mortars or tanks. So he doesn't know totally what you purchase. So there's lots of replay there as well. I think I've got sidetracked on your question, but uh, does that yeah, answer your question? I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask about DYO. Are those rules in the box already? Yeah. And it's quite fun because another thing interesting, well, interesting, when you really look at when you really look and go study and whatever and find out, let's let's talk about frontage. What's the defensive frontage of a company or a defensive frontage of a potential? So most games, including this one, is not necessarily historical uh, because you take typically a defensive line. Uh, you would have a squad. Uh, you'd, you'd probably have a squad of 10 men. And they would be two men to a hole every 10 yards, okay? <clears throat> or maybe 20 at the most. Well, that's only one or two hexes. So a lot of the scenarios or missions may not have squads, and they got to cover, you know, a frontage. So that's tough. It's not really historical. But you have to do that to make it interesting, or otherwise it's just a <laughs> – it's just it's a, it's kind of a bash, and, and not a lot of a maneuver. Um, so I've now already got sidetracked and forgot your question. <laughs> well, all right, we do that all the time. <laughs> That's a hallmark of our show. There you go. So ask me again. Or did you forget it as well, Richard? That that was uh, your question. No, I he answered my question about the DYO. So. Okay. Yeah, I, was, I was curious about that. Oh, well, I know what I was going to say about that. So interesting thing about the DYO is you, you now can play kind of what you would call, we call the maps sectors, okay, because you may have multiple. If you put three or four maps together, and that's, I mean, sorry, three or four sectors together to make one map. That makes sense? So we call them sectors in this game. So you're in, you're in sector two or sector four. <clears throat> So, but DYOs, you can have a narrow frontage, which would be taking 11 by 17 and folding it half. You're just using the narrow side there. That would be the narrow frontage. If you had, or you can fight a mission on a medium frontage, which would be an 11 by 17 would be the 11 side. Or you can fight on a wide frontage, which would be on the 17 side. So the axis of defense and, and attack would be along one of those three. So you can kind of, um, if you want to sit down for lunch, you got to take a lunch, or you want to do what a little one, you know, you got you got maybe a, a half of, you can play on a half of, um, 
a half of 11 by 17 and, and have a little uh, bash, you know. So it's, it's, uh, it's, um, you can play at a really small scale and kind of be good from a tactical perspective, and then you can get as big as you want. Uh, I've played up to, you know, two companies of infantry and a company of tanks, which is the countermix, and uh, it, it's certainly easily and doable. Uh, certainly people who play monster games are going to want more counters, but, you know, it, it's a lot to manage, but it's, it's doable. Go ahead. I'm all for smaller games that take less amount of time. And yeah, just the, the idea of it being, you know, that approachable and that easy and having that much tactical debt is very, very interesting to me. I'll make another comment about the armor here uh, in general, how it plays. Um, as I said earlier, armor is really hard to model. And I kind of talked about how I create, come up with the values and do it to kind of recreate the historical outcomes uh, but tanks for example they, they have lots of things they can do uh, and so for example in this game you could be sitting on a hill and uh, the enemy is coming at you and you can do a shoot and scoot okay? you shoot roll back off back side of the hill and he doesn't get a shot at you uh, now, your shooting scoots are limited to your hex that you're in only or in an adjacent hex. And both of them, there's modifiers on your fire. Uh, but still, so the armor is, I think, particularly good. Uh, you, can, you get enfilades. Let's talk about enfilades. Let's talk about it. So there's no quote facing in the game. Doesn't matter whether you have your counter upside down, sideways. It doesn't matter. The only reason I I I do orient my counters one way, it turns, and because on the next turn, as I activate a unit, I turn him sideways to show that he's activated. But other than that, from game purposes, there's no facing. Doesn't matter. So the only thing that really matters is. Go ahead. Sorry, including armor. Oh, yes. I'll okay. explain. So, so the, <clears throat> here's what counts in this game. It's it's the what the heck side or vertices did the fire enter the de defending unit's hex? Okay? So it's instantaneous. So let's say that um, – <clears throat> a good example. So here's an enfilade. Uh you fire at tank A, okay? Now, for that one moment, not for the game turn, just for that one incident, just for that one short cycle, you can, just for example purposes, you'll take a little fire marker with arrows and you're going to put it on the hex side. You fired through, okay? Now, you fired at my tank A through that hex side. I just so happen to have a tank B that it is now in a position that it fit. Oh, let me back up. So, <clears throat> so frontage is basically any three frontal hexes and anything behind the, the three rear, three hexes in the rear. So you say you fired a hex side at my A tank and you put a little arrow on that hex side you fired through. Now, if I react or if I have a unit that can fire into one of your three hex sides in, in my reaction, I'll get an enfilade. 
okay, because it represents that at that moment you're firing out the other way and I'm reacting and shooting your rear, okay? You don't have to turn a counter anyway. You don't have to do anything, okay? It's just it because you got the little arrow marker showing that you're firing at tank A and that designates your front. And so now I'm firing in the rear. So the difference is, is on the tank, you have a frontal armor value, which is in the lower right corner. The small value above it represents its side or rear. <clears throat> so there's, you can be infiltrated as a result of reaction fire, okay? Or you can be infiltrated, there's a second way. If you have a tank, and I have two tanks on the opposite side of you, in other words, if either one fired, you know, you're going to have to face one or the, the other. Uh, if either one fired, then, you know, one of them is going to get an infillate. So if I'm in that position at the beginning of my activation, I can call for an infillate because I have, at the moment of my reaction, whether it activation or reaction, doesn't matter. At that moment, I have two units in a position that if either fired, one would get an inflate. So you get to select which one you're going to face. Well, let's say that one of my tank A is a Panther and your tank and my other tank is a Panzer IV, okay? Uh, you would probably want to face the greatest risk. So probably say, well, I'm going to face the Panther, all right? <clears throat> so then when I fire, my Panther has to fire at your frontal. But my other tank, the Panzer IV, would get the infillate fire. And you designate the difference because any tank DRM markers are yellow. Uh, small arms DRM markers are green. We hadn't talked about those. That's a new concept in RF. And red DRM markers are mortars. And we can talk about that next few. I'll finish to wrap this up. Uh, the other way armor... I assume I answered that. So you, I can react to your fire, possibly get an infillade. If I have two tanks in a position that if either fired, I can possibly get an, I will get an infillade. The third is the last hex entered or the last hex side crossed by a vehicle represents those, that hex, adjoining hex, and basically the rear hexes, okay? Also is can be inflated through. So you just can't run around behind somebody because <laughs> you don't get to five movement points. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to swoop around and get a rear on a guy like some other games that you can move 15 hexes. So that's how you get inflates. But as soon as I call for reaction, okay, and that activation cycle is over and you shoot at my tank again, okay, the, there's no facing. So if you shoot at him again from somewhere else in a later activation, then it's considered his frontal again because he's now assumed to have pivoted and has now faced the greatest threat. So it's only with the hex side where the fire entered or fired from and at the moment of that fire. So you have that little activation cycle where somebody fires and there's reaction and that's done, okay, if somebody else fires at him in the next activation, we'll consider to be frontal again. Okay, no matter which hex side. So it doesn't. This this front rear stuff only lasts for that moment with the game turn, not the whole game turn. Does that clarify that? I believe so. Yes. I know I rambled, guys. You just oh, you just fine. have to. 
Um, so real quick about the small arm marker. So when you when you fired a unit in this game, you don't resolve fire then. Okay. You have an you have an initiative phase, an activation phase, a fire resolution phase, and an assault phase, and a cleanup phase. So when you fire a unit, if it's small arms, you use a green marker, and it's going to be it's, a, it's called SADRM, small arm DRM marker. And it's going to have a black or a red number. If it's red, it's a negative. If it's black, it's whatever. So basically, what that represents is the die roll modifier. So if I'm firing at your guy in the woods, and my firepower is a one at at your range, whatever you are, okay? You're going to get a minus one for the woods, so the net DRM is a zero. So I would take a green small arm modifier and place it on your unit, and that's going to represent the volume of fire I mark is activated. Now your unit over there could fire back; he could do nothing, or he could move. Now if he moves, he just takes the DRM because it's assumed that in this speck of time, this snapshot that I'm focusing on that unit. Now, he may be moving, but I, when he moves, I'm moving and firing in there. It's kind of this simultaneous thing. <clears throat> if you Now, if you have DRM markers on you, you know, that's going to suppress your fire. So I want to, even if I can't hurt you, I'm going to try and suppress you. So because if you fire back, you're going to be reduced by one because you're suppressed, for example. Uh, now, any tank rounds, now, when you're firing SADRM, it comes time to resolve fire, all, all the units that are in a hex, your units, are affected by all those markers. Even if they even if they came or went, it's whoever ends up in the hex with that marker. So it's possible that I could fire your guy, place a zero DRM morning. He moves into another hex with one of your other guys, okay? Which would probably be pissed off because this other dude that got shot at just drug the enemy fire into his position, did he not? <laughs> So, so when it comes time to resolve the fire, it applies to all units in that hex. If it's any tank fire, it only applies to the unit you shoot at, obviously. But it's the same principle. You know, when you fire a tank, you take a yellow DRM marker plus, you know, a black or green, a red, whichever the final DRM is, and you place it on that tank. That tank can still shoot and it can still move. Okay, it just takes it with it. Now. When you do, when you're done with the fire, okay. When the when the when I take that back. So when the activation phase is over, that means all units have been activated, all reactions done, it's all done. Then you resolve fire. So you don't get to see the results. You can't move a guy out and try and bait someone to shoot, and then move everybody else. You're just not going to get to see the result. And so where it really pays off, where it's another factor. Let's say that during the activation phase, I fired it. You you were assaulting my hex. I have a squad in a hex, and you have two guys assaulting, and I fired at you. And so one SADM marker is a minus one, one SADM marker is a zero. So your two guys come into my hex, you know, it, during your turn, because when you assault, that's an action. You just move them into the hex if you can get there, but you move the unit in there now. You don't wait at the end of the activation phase and now move assault again. You move it in your action. So you have two units that came into my hex. You, those two units both are going to have to now suffer the fire of the zero and the minus one. So I roll a 10-sided die, 
designated, I roll a 10-sided die for the zero. I roll a 10-sided die for the minus one. <clears throat> no matter whether there's three or four markers, you're going to take the single most detrimental to the units. So let's say on the 10-sided die, I roll a eight, and on the minus one, I roll a two. So the best number is an eight. So I compare that to the unit's cohesion. If it's greater than its cohesion, that unit, the best unit in the hex are automatically disrupts. If he passed, nobody else has to check. But if he disrupts, everybody else in the hex has to check. Okay. So that's how fire works. But you don't get to see that. So let's say you're in my hex. You're marked with these markers. Okay, and now we resolve fire and hell. Both your guys disrupt. Well, now when we do the assault, your assault values just went really down. Okay, <laughs> and not only that, you're disrupted and you're at risk of now, if you lose the fight, disrupting again, which means that you'll now have to take a cohesion check again. And if you fail, then you're going to lose a step. So you don't get you know, you don't know what the fire results are, and you don't, when you get in that assault, you're not going to know until, you're not going to know what your odds are in that assault until after the fire resolution is done. So you have red markers, I'm sorry guys, I'll, I'll keep going. The red yeah. markers are for mortars, for fires, uh, and if you want to talk about that second, I'll, I'll give you the floor backup. <laughs> Go ahead. Am I telling you more than you need to know? Help me out, guys. <laughs> what do you think, Rich? No, I think it's interesting. You're going into the, the basics of your system works, which is, I think, what people want to hear if they're evaluating. You know, like we said, there's, there's, there's a lot of different tactical World War II games. Every game does something different. So you're, you're telling what yours does differently, which I think is good. Okay. I'm just looking at your guidance but I just don't ramble on. So uh, uh, should I talk about mortars? Yeah, by, by all means, talk about the, uh, mortars and how they uh, impact the, in the game. Uh, again, I abstract mortars as much as possible. There's no mortar counter. Uh, in the game, you either, have, you either have a mortar section, which is generally two, two, two mortars, be it 60 millimeter or, say, eight centimeter, 81 millimeter at this scale, <clears throat> or you can have a mortar platoon. Platoon's gonna be six mortars generally, six 81s. Uh, and so, <clears throat> uh, so what you have is you have a forward observer marker, not a counter, it's just a marker. It does represent a person or two. And you have a target marker corresponding to that uh, FO. So, if all if, <clears throat> so how it works is is I got I have to be able to have line of sight. I have to be in command. I must say in command. Not I won't use a command radius, but there's certain requirements that the leader can't that unit's leader can't be disrupted and he can't be disrupted. But if I have a unit that's in line of sight and he's eligible, any unit, okay, he can call for mortar fire on a target, and you place the F forward observer in that hex. So it has to be the first thing that unit in the hex, not the FO, the unit in the hex does. The first, thing he, first part of his action has to be request. With the more, We're kind of losing the you hex. there. 
Can you, you have to repeat okay. that. I kind of lost Back you up. there. Okay. I have a squad. He's eligible. I'm going to call the mortar fire on your unit in line of sight. You have a unit on a hill. I'm going to it, – whatever – it rains forever. Okay. It's considered to be off board. There are no mortar counters. So you're on a hill. I'm going to place the Ford Observer in my hex. I'm going to place his corresponding target marker in your hex. And we're to use example in this case that it's an 80 millimeter or 8 centimeter or 81. It's, it's HE value, assuming you call HE and not smoke. It's HE value is a plus two. So I now place a plus, plus two marker in your hex. <clears throat> if it's a mortar section, I'm going to get to roll one more die, a 10 sided die for scatter. It's one to six, it's going to be in one of the surrounding six hexes. If it's seven to ten, it's going to land in the impact or the primary impact hex. So you, so let's say in this particular case, it, I rolled a, a nine. So we have now two plus two markers in your hex on the hill. Well, if you're under a red DRM marker, unlike the yellow or the green, you can't do anything. You can't recover. You can't do anything except you could withdraw. If you withdraw, you take those two fire attacks before you leave. If you happen to be in a, on, in a building on the hill, <clears throat> the mortar DRM would be a zero because you subtract two from the building. But if you chose to exit the hex, you wouldn't get the building covered. You would have to take the fire at a plus two. So in the game, mortars are very powerful, not so much just killing units, but they can delay or disrupt a, a platoon for a turn or, or two, maybe. Uh, so they're pretty lethal. <clears throat> if it's a mortar platoon, instead of just two DRM markers, you get to roll six die. So instead of just two impacts, more two rounds, in essence, however you want to call it, you would be placing twos everywhere. It's really, really brutal. Now, when you, at the end of the turn, you resolve fire, you do all that just like the other. At the end of the turn, you have the opportunity to extend that fire one time. <clears throat> and you need a, and we'll say in this particular case, you would need a four or less to extend it. You could move it off. You could have and the target marker and put it in the mortar in the mortar recovery box. Okay, and you can roll for it and get it back into the next turn, or you can try and extend it. Now, if you extend it, okay, if you're successful, then you get to immediately attack that hex again or move it to any hex within two hexes. <laughs> but if you fail, it's going to be two turns before you get to roll because you have to pull that marker off the next pending roll box and get it back to turn. You can roll for it afterwards. So when I say roll for it, you have to have – if you fire it and it's done its fire, it moves into a mortar pending box. In order to get that, again, every end of every turn, you get to roll. If you roll four or less, it comes available again. What that represents is – possibly moving to a different location, <clears throat> you know, the transfer of ammo, uh, acquiring a new target, so that time loss. Um, so 
it's very important that, you know, you, if you say you may not get to fire that thing, depending on how lucky you are, you might get two or three shots in a 30 minute mission, or you might get four or five. <laughs> so you have to be very judicial in making sure you have it at the right time or when you need it the most. That makes sense. But it's real simple. It's, you make, you place it on the map and, and you put the DRA markers and you roll for it to end of the, it, during the fire resolution phase. And you... <coughs> well, I think we've covered a lot about this game. If you don't know anything about it, you certainly know now <laughs> what to do. Yeah. And uh, I More did than see where it has like, I did see where it has a vassal mod as well. So uh, you can find opponents that way too. And uh, maybe, you know, take a look at the game and see how it like uh, you like it. And you can get that off the GMT website. Rich, is there anything else you might want to know? Uh, no, I think that pretty much covers it. I appreciate your time. Well, yeah, I know it took a, it took well, a while I appreciate for me and you. Yeah, it, it took a while for me and you to, you know, get coordinated and get this done. And, you know, you're you're on satellite. You hadn't really used uh, Skype in a while, but I'm glad it all came together. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share uh, the game. You know, I'm as I said earlier, my goal is hopefully kind of gets to be a community project. I think it's a good engine. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and there's a lot of playability in the, in the game. So thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss it. Congratulations. Also, I mean, thank you. Pretty cool to have your game come out. I'm happy for you. You'll get there one day, Rich. I promise. <laughs> well, you guys need to try it. And if you do, I want to know what you think. Yes, we will let you know. I see you're uh, you're active on BGG. I saw you're answering some questions on your on the forums there. So. Uh, yeah, I will let you know. Yeah, I'm trying to. Uh, that's another thing. <clears throat> I think there's been a lot of question about some of the errata. Uh, you know, I, my my objective here is to make it the make it to improve the game, make it the best. And if I if I need to, if I find some errata or need to make a change, you know, I'm not going to hesitate to do that. So again, I kind of look at it as a community project, uh, and. You know, I'm going to do everything I can to be as responsive. You can either email me or you can go to BGG and I'll answer any and all your questions. And uh, I'm really committed to the game and I'm going to do what is necessary to support it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. And uh, we wish you luck in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Good night. Okay. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Adam. Uh-huh. And now we're back. Uh, through the magic of editing and what I was going to say was GMT was nice enough so very very nice my close personal friend Roger B. McGowan was so very very nice to give us a copy of this game to give away uh, one disclaimer you have to be in the US Roger said that's what he was willing to do it's just the US so guys, how should we handle this giveaway? They should absolutely email us, which is um, Chance of Gaming, all one word at gmail.com. But what should they, what should they email? What should, what should they say? I mean, how? I mean, shouldn't there be something like they should put in? Have to put in? Hmm. What do you guys think? Yeah. 
We should have thought of this Tell before what, we started. Uh, you, well, yeah, well, I know, but yeah, we're just thinking on the fly. Hey, we will say, okay, email us at chanceofgaming at gmail.com with your favorite mythological creature. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Is like your name, you have to live in the U.S., and your favorite mythological creature. <laughs> and then uh, we will draw on the next episode before Dice Tower Con. So, yeah. Politician full gonna, of integrity. I'm not, I'm not going to stretch this out for, you know, a long time. So, I mean, if only two people, you know, do, you know, if only you, you probably have a really good chance of winning this, you know. People aren't that keen on, on uh, emailing us in into our contest. So, there you go free copy of this nice game that you heard all about in the interview so yeah chance of gaming at gmail.com what is your favorite mythological creature i just want to say one last thing about that interview um it was you could really tell from talking to him that that game was a labor of love for him and i just think it's really cool that a guy is 70 70 years old and he's publishing his very first game this is something that is is personal and and he's connected to and he really he loves this game. He designed it for himself and for his was it his brother or his dad? I can't remember who he said he was playing with. Um, but I just I thought it was really cool listening to him talk about his game. Yeah, that is true. It gives me hope. You know, I want to you know one day get my my game off the ground. I know Richard does too. So we got we got thirty years. Rich. Yeah, we got plenty of time to do it. I don't have thirty until I'm seventy, but I got more than twenty. So. <laughs> yeah. So I it'll absolutely yeah I think it'll work. So, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. No problem. So, uh, moving on, what is our next thing? What do we got here? Some pleasantness. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was um, a thing uh, that happened at the UK Games Expo. And this is, uh, you probably heard about it if you follow it on Twitter. It was, uh, a game, you know how you go to these things, be it Gen Con or whatever, you know, and you purchase tickets to play in whatever, you know, there's a schedule. It's like, I want to go and play, you know, Roy's doing, uh, you know, hosting a thing of Don't Break the Ice and so at 2 p.m., and so I'm going to go there. And so people did that, and this guy was GMing a copy of uh, Tales from the Loop, which is, eh, I mean, I don't really think of it as being very adult or you know controversial or stuff like that but one of the people that got in it claimed that there was a, a gang rape scene a scene of sexual violence in the actual game and um this caused a huge uproar the guy was like tossed out of the convention and um yeah so we're gonna post some links in the show notes i mean i don't there isn't much to comment on other than to say no this is bad and yet yeah, this is horrible you should not do this and it absolutely this isn't what i would suspect either when i'm going to go to a uh, a, a game and sit down like i am said and, and play a game of loop and louie or whatever and suddenly this this come no it includes this this is terrible so i was actually able to find a interview with the guy that uh, reached out to some guy reached out to him and uh, this is Postmortem Studios. At least this is dot WordPress. I'd never heard of these guys before. And anyway, they actually interviewed the guy, which is Kevin Rolf. And uh, there is a audio component as well as you can read it. 
And, um, yeah, this is his side of it as well. And um, I do know that, like, he was... It started... The whole thing started on Reddit, and it spilled over to um, Twitter. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just a bunch of awful stuff that I really don't want to talk about. And so I will just kind of toss this up in the show notes. You can take a look at it. You can read it and just draw your own opinion. Because, I mean, eh, I, I don't want to talk about it. It's that bad. So, moving on. Stop being more... creepy assholes. Yes. I mean, it's not hard. Uh, Morpheus is bringing Elder Scrolls to the tabletop. And this announcement is what kicked off my idea of, well, you know... Fallout doesn't seem to be doing that great. You know, uh, Game of Thrones isn't seem to be doing that great. I mean, honestly, when they announced Game of Thrones, I was like, aha, that's it for uh, Age of Sigmar by Games Workshop. Haha. But no, that's not the case. It's like these people that watch Game of Thrones and love Game of Thrones, they play Age of Sigmar. I don't get it. I really don't. Because, I mean, if I was had an opportunity for an IP that I really enjoyed to be able to play it on the tabletop, like Star Trek Discovery or the Orville, you know, although I don't want to play the dumb hero clicks thing. It's like, I would do it, especially this big epic, you know, being able to push around an army, man, that would be so cool. I think the problem but, with a lot of these games, like what I think it is with the Skyrim game. And we've talked about other IPs that, it seems like it's all the same game. It's all just the same little miniature game. Dudes on a map. All, you know, they all all the Simon games, and I don't I don't know this one is in a Simon game, but they all just kind of look the same. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Harry Potter or the Dragonborn from Skyrim or you know Jamie Lannister. It's the same game. It's just all that they, they all feel the same to me, which makes me wonder why they have the IP at all. Well, I mean that that. That's a good point, but you could actually argue that with pretty much anything, uh, that a lot of these games are basically just reskinned versions of the other words with just some details, yeah. you know, changed. For the longest time, everything was ranks and flanks, so, you know, everybody was being pushed around on a little thing, and, you know, nowadays it's just kings of war, and that's what sets them apart. You know, because uh, Warhammer Fantasy died, and now you have Age of Sigmar, and there it's basically large-scale skirmish. You don't have to worry about that kind of thing. But again, it's it. Everybody has magic. You know, everybody has flyers. Everybody has a dragon. You know, and it's it is just kind of that way. So, yeah. But with this, this will be a skirmish game the same way of um, Fallout. I think this is basically just going to be like a reskinned version of the of fallout for them so uh i don't know i'm curious to see how it goes i will have you, either one of you guys played skyrim yes yeah quite a bit I've, I've, and fallout yeah i although i have not played the last i've never played fallout 4 or 76 no nope, me, me either uh i actually loaned uh my copy of fallout 4 to my kid to play i need to see how she did I just put, that but on skyrim and steam 409 hours so, yes, oh, wow. I play. Wow. <laughs> Look, I was a latecomer to that, and I finally um, I finally beat, uh, played it, sat down, played it, and beat it over, like, several months. Maybe even, like, as long as, like, nine months. i reasonably sure I put somewhere between two and 300 hours into it. That was the buggiest AAA title I have ever played in my life. 
Skyrim? It, I, uh, Skyrim. Huh. I didn't have any fun. I could not. There were so many, like, clipping issues and just other stuff. Uh, nothing game-breaking that would warrant a patch, but still, weird stuff would happen, you know? And, uh, yeah, like, the dragon that ascends to, to get me and just goes, like, right through the road. You know, it goes down. But, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, Fallout, to a lesser extent, some of that can happen. There used to be a great one, a great bug, where you could actually descend below. You could uh, lie prone, like, below the the road or the, the ground and just shoot people from there. Yeah. And, yeah, anyway. <laughs> but that was... I mean, I liked it. I liked the story. In fact, I finally just got tired of playing it after hundreds of hours you know, putting it in, of doing side quests, I was like, eh, I guess I'll go back and finish the first, you know, finish the main quest and call it a day. <coughs> so, uh, the next thing we have was the cheap-ass games got sold. I was surprised. First, that they were kind of still around, because I think the last thing I heard from them was uh, Kill Dr. Lucky. Yeah. And, uh, well, yeah. There I was, not- I think they were putting out a book that's going to have all these cheap-ass games in the book. That'd be cool. I think. Yeah. Where did I... I forget where I saw that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I don't know anything what? about this. Uh, I mean, I read the story, but... Um, if, if I was a fan of cheap-ass games, I wouldn't be worried, because greater than games, you know, they're, they're a good publisher, and I wouldn't be worried about anything going into their hands. Yeah, I I read that where um, they had picked it up, and it it what it, this has like it says one of their two current two bestsellers. One of them is Unexploded Cow, and then the other is Kill Doctor Lucky. But uh, in looking at the games, the one I remembered like uh, most of all was uh, Button Men. But I remember them when they were actually like buttons, you know. And, of course, what you get now is without the button. It's basically get cards. And so they were kind of like, it was sort of like a BCG, a button collectible game. Okay. <laughs> or, or a CBG, collectible button game, is kind of what it was. And so we would actually go around to different shops in the area looking for better buttons. You know, we'd wear them to, like, cons and just, like, because it, it was, like, real easy to play. We'd just take off our buttons and have a dice, and we would just try to kill the other guy that we ran into at the con. So, oh. I do see. I see. It also made me think that we should do like a uh, button men for like podcasters. You know, make stats and stuff for them. Of course, you know, I'm always interested in doing in doing that. There should be like a, a podcast collectible game or something. Somebody should kickstart that. <laughs> you should, because then podcasters would talk about how great it is because they get a card in it. You know. And all of their audio would be terrible. (laughs) And it would go. I do see they also published TAC, which for the longest time, I saw that in stores and was like, okay, maybe that's some old weird game or or whatever. But come to find out, it's actually from the King Killer Chronicles. Right. Yeah, Patrick Rothfuss invented the game. First he wrote about it in the books, and then he actually invented the game afterwards. I, yeah, I like that. I really do because I, you know, I'm always fascinated by like games that you know characters and stuff are playing in in the thing, especially when they're like, oh, you know, it's it's this big thing in our land that we play this and you know whatnot. 
So I am kind of uh, surprised, though. Isn't the King Killer Chronicle only like uh, was it like two books at this point? At this point, yes. There's a third one that may someday be written. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean that's just yeah crazy to me that the, out of two books that are they were so popular yeah. that they were able to get their own board game. So that would be another crazy. one. I mean, maybe someone's done that. I don't know. But there's a a chess type game that they play in Game of Thrones. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if someone made that into a game called like Dragons and Castles or something. I don't remember, but but there is a game that they play in Game of Thrones, a chess type game, and. Shoots and ladders. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, but I would. They make someone that. made that into a game. Just people will buy it. All right. The the next thing I had on here was Trick Shot, the ice hockey board game. I was just gonna toss this on here because um, you know, we're all talking about hockey nowadays, and I will say the Kickstarter has finished, and I was also amazed that people. This Kickstarter raised a hundred and sixty-seven thousand dollars to uh bring this to the table and honestly it kind of looks sort of like an ice hockey version of like guild ball or like um what you call it a blood bowl oh yeah yeah it's it's kind of what it looks like to me so uh at least in appearance wise so eh, it's it's kind of neat see what the buy-in the minimum buy-in on this thing was is this dexterity based I don't That's think so. That's what I was so. wondering too, but I don't think so. Yeah, it's like sixty bucks, or you could have paid seventy nine. Uh, you could have paid eighty bucks and got a pre painted, the, the miniatures pre painted. <coughs> I would like a dexterity, yeah, thing. Let's see, yeah, it's just uh, grid movement and press your luck mechanisms. Oh, I do see the grid so. now. Okay, it's really oh, light. Just interesting since we're on a hockey kick. You know, and I'm kind of interested in um, my trip to Milwaukee. Kind of got me interested in baseball again, and so I kind of started uh, looking at following a team, and then I um, started watching Ken Burns's baseball, and I'm actually kind of interested to look at like some sports board games and like how they play. Like I know, I think Avalon Hill or somebody. Some big company like in the 80s or 90s did like a basketball game and a, a football game, and they were, um, I, I mean, they're they're worth money on the uh, the secondary market, so they must be some kind of good. And I think uh, Richard Bergborg uh, did a like a pizza box football game that's supposed to be real popular. I'm just very curious as to like how you actually play it, like. Um, you know, am I rolling dice to see if I if I pass to Kobe or you know what? Is that the I don't know. the Stratomatic games? I don't know. Okay. I I honestly don't know. I'm just yeah. As usual, I'm just talking out my ass. Um, <laughs> it's like well, I vaguely recall something about the you know and. But yeah, I'm just always curious as to like you know how those games play, and I think they're actually. You know, I know video game wise, those are considered like AAA titles. You know, there is a FIFA. You know, there is um, there's a baseball game that's really big. A football game. The, you know, the Madden series are all really big. So I imagine there's somebody that puts out a new sports game. You know, every so many years to and yeah, I'm just wondering if they're any good. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could figure it out. And uh, do a little write-up, or um, I I even tried to bid on one, I think, on um, 
the Dice Tower thing, I think for basketball, just because it was so odd that I was like, well, you know, that's the kind of thing I'd like to sit down and attempt to play and and then write about it because it's just such an odd mechanic, especially for like for what I'm used to. But I don't know. Anyway, two uh, pre-orders that are coming up. You can now pre-order the Alien RPG, and it's it comes from Free League Publishing, and that's the company that did the aforementioned um, Tales from the Loop. So I really like most of the stuff they've been they've put out and have backed several Kickstarters, including that one. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think this is going to be really cool. It's going to be uh, they're going to be a 168 page cinematic starter kit for it and uh, have a bunch of extra this, that, and the other. It'll have the Year Zero game engine in it and uh, 300 pages of mythology artwork and custom mechanics. So, it'll be neat. Uh, seems like there was supposed to be an Aliens um, board game or something that was supposed to come out at, at some point that sounded really was good. Was that like a skirmish level it, game? Well, yeah, I think it was It was supposed to be more like a dungeon oh, really? crawler. Okay. But but maybe that was just a dream. I don't know. Uh, so, but yeah, these. Well, yeah, I'm, go ahead. I'm thinking about the movies. So in Aliens, um, shoot, I had his name and then I forgot it. Uh, the Paxton character, Hudson. Um, Hudson says to Apone, "Sir, is this going to be another bug hunt?" So, to me, that implied that they had never found aliens or any kind of alien race before. You know, what, what is the lore there? Is this game going to have um, more than Xenomorphs in it? Well, uh, I'll tell you this. In that actual line, that implies that Hudson had actually been out and his squad had been looking for it. But that does not mean the company had not already found okay. it. And so if you like read the other books and comics and, and whatnot, they have. Okay. And they're just looking. They're looking for more. Well, it sounded like he was really sarcastic and like, "Yeah, we're gonna go out and, and chase another unicorn." Well, that's because they had been told to look for these things and they had not okay. found them. So, like, at you know, if they had actually found, well, I mean, he dude would have probably been dead. You know, that's if if they had actually found them. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> uh, I'm trying to see. I thought Morpheus was publishing this, but no, it, it is the Free League uh, thing because I said it myself. And I'm looking at the different versions you can get. Um, the standard edition, just for the rule books, fifty bucks. So that's not bad for an RPG book. I don't. I don't think at three hundred pages. So that that's probably about right. But for the big, the big, big company standard version, which gets you like a poster. Dice, GM screen, uh, 50 custom cards, maps, markers, uh, 250. 250 is what they're going to want from that. So, mm. Hey, so I'm going to throw in a link here. There was a little sidebar um, that was behind in that same page. Um, there's a Kickstarter for Terrain for Aliens, too. Yeah, really? it's BioCraft 3D printable miniature terrain. So if it's 3D printable, do you think I could get it permi- uh, printed at Alter Dimension? Well, you would have to purchase a license and then send it to him and say, yes, I have the rights to, to print this. Okay. But anyway, I saw this Kickstarter. This uh, terrain looks pretty cool. Um, 
So oh, it's yeah, a lot it of the Geiger, very... HR Geiger kind of set pieces. Yeah. So this is that is really yeah. cool. This has been uh, well funded. Where what is it? Almost a ten thousand dollars of a five hundred dollar goal. Um, yeah, thirteen days left to go is the time of recording for this, and for fifty bucks you get fifteen STL things. So uh, yeah, you would get the files at that point, and then yeah, you could get them printed at like Alter Dementia, or you know, technically this is if you owned your own three D printer. But yeah, you could absolutely send it to a place like him. Mm-hmm. And have him print it, and you could get a twenty percent discount too with it's with COG twenty nineteen. So that's pretty. So anyway, cool. yeah, I thought that was cool. But yeah, I'm almost positive there was an uh, Aliens board game that you know we we had talked about that was like a uh, dungeon crawler. But I don't know. I'll poke around later and <laughs> and toss it in the show notes if I can if I can um, find it if it didn't exist in some fever dream of mine. <laughs> and then the. <clears throat> the other thing coming out, this one's from Morpheus, is the uh, Fallout Wasteland Warfare RPG film one. You know, they already have the uh, miniature game, the skirmish game. And I actually had a friend who's like way into that game and is trying to get it off the ground here in Mississippi. <clears throat> but this will be the role-playing game. And uh, yeah, Morpheus is one of those guys, uh, one of those companies that has a lot of IPs. So I would mm-hmm. really like to talk to that guy. About like you know, I mean, what does it cost to to actually get it? It reminds me of what was that Kickstarter the guy wanted so he could get. First of all, after you give him the money, he was going to see how he could get the Game of Thrones oh, yeah. IP. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, first I need a quarter of a million dollars, then I'll see how this is gonna work, and then I'll do all this stuff. So, eh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, the next thing we had was just when you thought it was dead, because you all did, WizKids is coming out with a new Star Trek Attack Wing set. And I will remind you, Richard, that this was the X-Wing competition at one point. Right. Was Star Trek Attack Wing. Yeah. And man, I mean, I know people that still play it, but I, I don't think they've put out anything new for it. And I swear years. No, I don't. I mean, I, I've seen it sitting on the shelves at the miniature market. They've got, like, a, there's, a, there's a, a Borg cube. It's, like, a, it's a, probably a, a one-inch, I mean, a one-foot cube that just oh, yeah. looks really cool. But I don't know what you do with it. Just sit in the middle of your table and stuff, and I have no idea. But, yeah, I've seen this stuff up at the store. There's, there's Attack Wing, there's X-Wing, there's also, I think, Dragon Wing or something like that. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uses the same mechanics. Yeah. But I've never played it. But, uh, yeah, that's that's what this is. And uh, they're bringing it back from the dead, and they're going to focus on the cartoon, which is kind of neat. What would be really neat is if the actual miniatures were, like, uh, cell-shaded. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that that would look really cool, and I might actually buy into them that way. But, uh, yeah, so they're doing this, and apparently they're doing, they're doing a Borg faction as well. So <clears throat> that's interesting. And um, the next thing we had was this new game coming out called uh, Battle Station's Dirt Side. Dirt Side. Which is a sci-fi... Dirt Side, yeah. And uh, I was interested in this for a couple of reasons, because apparently Battle Stations is a really big sci-fi uh, dungeon crawl right now. And this is kind of a larger, a little bit larger scale for it. 
and is compatible with the Battle Stations um, skirmish game. And I, I am liking the uh, the artwork, which has got weird little you know bear people shooting at rhinoceros people. I don't know what that's about, but. <laughs> But yeah, and I was actually kind of interested in backing this until I saw like, eh, it's like a hundred bucks. You get like is what you get like a copy of it. So this is already backed, and when it comes out, I'll be able to get it for much less than that. So eh, I mean, I like the components. The figures are cool. It's combined arms. All that's nice. But um, yeah, eh, it's. I'll, I'll wait since it's backed, but yeah, I do like the little rhinoceroses guys. They wanted twenty-eight grand. They got one hundred and fourteen grand as of this, with nineteen days left to go. So this thing's gonna back for sure. It also reminded me there is another um, version of um, uh, there's a fifty millimeter game called Dirt Side. So I don't know if that's connected or how the IP worked or, you know, whatever. But there you go. And the last thing we had was Dead Zone Escalation is now available. And the whole reason why I toss this on here is because of the War Store's demise and their inventory is getting cheaper, I was actually kind of interested in picking up some of the Dead Zone stuff because this it is a sci-fi dungeon crawl. And I'm kind of very interested in that at the moment. Plus, they have space dwarves. So, you know, that's all. You know, I like dwarves, and these are dwarves in space. In space! So, you know, kind of, yeah. Are they super tall? So if they drop, if they drop cheaper than, like, Miniature Market or, or whatever, yeah, I would get... Oh, yeah, that reminds me that uh, at the same time the War Store was dying was uh, Miniature Market did their mega sale. Did you get anything out of that? No. I didn't realize that you know, was, that was all the thing. time. So a lot of stuff I yeah. Yeah, they they did. There was the uh the miniature market uh mega sale. And um I'm trying to think of what in the world I actually ended up picking up because I hemmed and hawed over so many uh <laughs> different things. It's like, well, first of all, let me l- load up my um load up my cart with like $300 worth of stuff and then like, uh, no, okay, let's back off of this some and see what I actually uh, ended up getting. I do remember uh, I got the uh, pa- uh, the Panzer, the last Panzer expansion, which was uh, France 1940. Yeah, I got that. I do remember, yeah, I do remember that because that's the whole thing that made me um, seek out a copy of uh, Panzer yeah. was that. And so, yeah, so I got that on the way. And uh, I cannot remember what the other thing was. Seems like it was something else. It could have been like more um, Rivet Wars or something, but yeah. Anyway. So, uh, well, yeah, I guess that brings us to the uh, the end of the show. Well, there's one did other we, item there did we talk that about? I added on. Oh, yes. Whoa. I forgot about this. You're right. Our close personal friend, Jerry Hawthorne from Plaid Hat Games, is bringing out another adventure book game called Aftermath. So this is the game that he was talking about when he we interviewed him. Yeah, he didn't give us any details. He just sort of teased it. You know, he could have at least meowed or something. <laughs> that would have been good. Well, I'm trying like, to... like, guys, I could, give you guys, I could give you one clue. Meow. And we would have been like, what? But yeah, this is... Uh, mice, 
uh, fighting like predators and stuff like that. I mean, it, it is like a post-apocalyptic game where there are sentient animals now kind of like running around the thing. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I like where it's like... Um, this strand, see, a stranded colony needs your help. Can you rescue them from Smokey the Dreaded Cat? That's one mission. Another is Round the Clock was once a busy convenience store. Now its items are coveted by all and protected by the Flea Whisperer. So, so I do remember him saying that it was going to be more sandboxy, as I recall, when we spoke with him. Yeah. I think we should definitely go back and uh, relook at that, I'll, and I'll try to I'll toss that interview in the show notes down there at the bottom if it doesn't screw up the formatting. Um, yeah. Okay, it's coming to the this fall. You can pre-order it. Let's see how much. Looks like it comes with a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, I'm glad. It, yeah, it's eighty four ninety five. Mm-hmm. I will say it comes with a lot of stuff. At least in the list. Wow. A lot of stuff. So, yeah, this is going to be pretty cool. I it comes think. with 23 plastic figures. Plus yeah. a, bu- a bunch of little cardboard stand-ups. And if they're like the ones in stuffed Sables, they're good quality. Yeah. Yeah. Which, oh yeah, that reminds me. Um, I'm, you know, I've got stuff for I'm listing for sale or just want to get rid of in that uh, our dice tower list. You guys should look at the bottom of it and see if there's any that you want. Like I said, I will uh, sell, trade, or give away a bunch of stuff there on the end of it. So okay, I have a list. So there you go. So does that bring us to the end, the end of the show? I think it do. It's a long show. Yeah. Happy you guys uh, stayed with us this long. And, uh, yeah, so I guess that's the end of the show. And uh, the next time we'll talk will be pre-Dice Tower, and I'm hoping uh, we'll be able to get a lot of stuff together to do um, do stuff at Dice Tower. I, you know, every every, at the, every day that we're all there together, I, I'd like to, you know, just do a stream of us just talking about, like, what we played and what we thought, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. If that happens to work. But, yeah. I'll have to get my ten-year-old so, on, and we'll get her her yes. uh, input. So, what did you think? What did you play today? She's like, well, I played the forty-third episode, you know, forty-third scenario of Advanced Squad Leader, but the guy teach, you know, playing, I had to teach him. It was terrible. <laughs> it was a noob. Yeah. He didn't even know about rate of fire on the machine gun. Right. You got to do a squeaky voice, Richard. <laughs> He's got you that I way. Have, I, I have a naturally squeaky voice. I already sound like a girl. So. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be cool. I'm I'm really excited. Excited to see my family and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, it's gonna be awesome. All right, so I guess that is it. That's the end of the show, and we'll see you guys later. Good night, go. everybody. Oh, I stepped on your toes. Go ahead. <laughs> I just said, let's go Blues. Sing Gloria. Play hockey. Keep your stick on the ice.